Can you name a city that hosted a game at the 2002 World Cup? Should we say Tokyo? Out straight away. Whoa! What? Oh, what are the greatest answers of all time. OTB AM. Live, weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Half past seven, you're with us here on OTBAM. Busy old show coming your way between now and around half past ten this morning. We're staying on air the extra half hour to bring you reaction and analysis to Ireland's first game down under. They're up against the Maori All Blacks this morning. We're going to get stuck straight into it. And as you can see on screen, we've got Cullen Boyle on standby. We'll get to him in just a second. A League of Ireland latest with Johnny Ward and Nathan Murphy after that. We'll bring you sports pages, sports news. John Duggan will be with us in studio. We'll do a Manchester United update with Daniel Harris before deal or no deal with Phil at ten past nine. Uh, there's a, a great Johan Cruyff piece coming your way from last night's show at half past nine. And then Keith Wood will join us for analysis for that game, which kicks off at five past eight. Johnny, how are you getting on? Good morning, all. We've got Nathan on the line as well. And also, uh, Cullen Boyle, as I've mentioned, joins us on Skype. Cullen, good morning. How are you keeping? How are you lads? How are things? So the big talking point I guess when it comes to Mayo and the aftermath of the weekend that was was James Horan stepping away. Did you get the feeling coming out of Crow Park on Sunday that this was the end of an era? Yeah, I, I think so. On I, I just sense that even after the Kildare game, I, I listened to his interview. I actually watched it back a, a couple of times. I got that sense from him that he he just sounded a lot different than 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 a normal self. He sounded actually quite emotional after that, that game, and I think it was the fact that he, twenty minutes ago, I think he he might have thought this is it. This is how my Mayo um, career as such is ending for him and obviously he mentioned then how, how proud he was of the team on, on numerous occasions and, and that's not something you normally hear James Horne say a lot in interviews so I definitely got the sense that day that you know this was this was the this was the end for him or this was his last year should I say and uh, you know the fact that he went so quick after the Kerry game and I think I think what, what would have happened there he would have told his team after the game and then maybe close family members and whatnot and then obviously gets a release to the media the next day which I think was the good way a good way to do it means it doesn't linger on for the next couple of weeks and obviously as you said an end of an era certainly for for James Horn and and um and and that current and that you know that current Mayo team, but I think now you know we have to look into the things move on where there's players and management, and you have to the new era now begins. So the second stint for James Horan was all about trying to build on what happened in between his two periods, just to try and get Mayo over the line. But the first stint, his, his first arrival, some people I kind of forget that his job was to get Mayo back to the top table, to get Mayo back to being contenders again on an All-Ireland level. So what, what do you remember about, I guess, those, those early days and, and James Horan coming in and the changes that he made immediately in his first stint? Yeah, well, I suppose the first thing was to recognise that the turmoil that was Mayo football was kind of in. And, and I know Nathan is there. He'll remember it well. Like 2010 was a, was a hugely controversial year in, in Mayo football history, really. Got beaten by Sligo really quite convincingly in, in the in the Connacht Championship and then go to, go to Pierce Park and Lanford. And, and get beaten there as well. And that team came in for huge, huge criticism, as, as did John O'Mahony at the time. And um, James came in. And look, at I, I wasn't there in 2011. Um, but, you know, what, all I can say is that I, I, I got dropped off the panel in 2009. I came back in at the end of 2011, and there was just a complete uh, mindset change. It was, it was a completely different environment than what I'd left two years ago. And that he'd set a new culture. He'd... 
he'd set a new standards where everyone was, was driving to improve and, and striving to improve and, and not just to improve yourself, but to, to improve each other. And we were we were becoming very critical of each other's games and, and looking, you know, to pick holes in each other's games and, and how we could all improve. And it was very much a case that it was all about the team. And if, if it, wa- it wasn't all about the team for you, then um, you weren't for the team. Um, so And that was his mindset and that was his culture. And he just drove a, a belief into us that if we did the work he was asking us to do and constantly look for improvement, then we could compete with anyone in our day. What did that look like in your return, upon your return, when you go back in there and you mentioned the, the whole culture shift? Is it just some of the stuff that he's saying? Is it is it the, the training? Is it, is it, like What is it exactly that makes you think for the first time, right, okay, this guy's trying to do something different here and, and things are a little bit different here? Well, even straight away from from his first year involved, he would have had a lot of local guys with him and, and local trainers. But then he he t- kind of thinks right to really step things up here and move things out to the next level. I might need to seek a bit of outside help, and he goes and get Keen O'Neill, um, who had obviously huge experience and was going very well at the time with the Tip Hurlers, and brought him in as a coach. And all of a sudden, things started to to really lift off and take off from there. But it was like I said to you, it was more of a case that just showing us the way basically showing us what we needed to do uh, to compete and and not taking not taking uh, really poor standards as as um as a given or something that was acceptable should should we say and uh, it was it was a case that call, calling lads out on it if lads really weren't doing their stuff he was calling them out on it and um, he was a, he was in you know allowing the culture where where lads were calling each other out on as well if something wasn't good enough it it was being said What's it like, Colin, being being the Mayo manager, essentially, a Mayo man as well? What's it like in terms of the pressure, the pressure internally in the county and um, just how, how much of a, a narrative it is like from across the year, really, January to December, to be to be doing a good job and to be uh, getting the best out of them? Yeah, Johnny, it's, it, look, it is, and I'm sure it's hugely, you know, it had to have taken its toll on them, just the mental strain that's there every day. And I'm moving forward into the last four years, but the, the last two years of, of managing a senior inter-county team with COVID restrictions and lockdowns, like that must have been hugely, hugely challenging. And that that would take its toll on anyone. And then you throw into the the fact that you get to two All-Ireland finals in that as well. You know, um, that certainly would have taken its toll. And, you know, last year, that final lose, loss to Tyrone, like James came in for huge criticism, as, as did the team, um, but probably James more so. And I think so much was, was unwarranted. And personalised um, as well, like. Yeah, yeah. And it was really, yeah, some of it was nasty. Some of it was really, really disappointing to see. But I, I think the genuine Mayo supporter now, uh, when they reflect on James's cont- contribution to Mayo football, both as a player and as a manager, and let's not forget he was, a, he was an outstanding player for Mayo as well. I, t- I think they were really... Um, appreciative of it um, and really grateful for for his service to Mayo football and like I suppose when you think back over the last 10 years of Mayo teams competing regularly at Crow Park and, and latter, fin- latter stages of the latter final like he started that and obviously it continued with, with Noel Kennelly and, pa- and Pat Holmes and, and Stephen Rochford of course and, and, and with James again when he comes back in but there's an awful lot of people like I'll take for example the Mayo minor team that are in the All Ireland final this year. That's all. That's all they know. They just regularly have seen Mayo competing at the latter stages of championship, which wasn't always the case. And and James to me started all that whole process. So I think I think as a county we we have a huge huge amount of um, 
of, of respect for him and we should have a, hu- a huge amount of gratitude for him. At what point then do you start to think that you will get over the line when he comes back in? I, I assume that's how you felt actually uh, first off, that when he comes back for his second stint that, that you start to think this is going to happen this time, that there's a, an even better version of, of Horn that's coming back to try and get us to the promised land. Yeah, look at that with Glenn, certainly. Um, and look at it starts you know, very well. We, we obviously won the league that year and we're, we're building and got a, got a couple of one or two new lads into the into the team um, then suffered that defeat to Dublin in the semi-final and I think James I think James's kind of mindset changed after that I think he realised that to compete with Dublin in Crow Park he needed maybe to get more athleticism into the team and more runners into the team to just be able to physically compete with them uh, for 70 plus minutes and, and to try and build a bigger squad and I think you, you've seen that over say 2020 and 2021 the amount of Newer, younger players, more athletic players that that he that he brought in, and our, our style of uh, play probably changed slightly um, through that. And the fact that we ran the ball an awful lot, a lot more because of naturally because of the, the the players we had and the runners we had, especially from deep. So that would have been one slight change, um, I would say, from definitely from from twenty nineteen, um, just in regards of with the sole focus of maybe the latter stages of the championship and probably Dublin in particular. And it does actually culminate then in the win last year. Like, uh, to, to what extent was that sort of, I guess, the icing and the cake of a Horn plan that, that had been set out from the end of 2019? Did, did you feel that some of the things that he was trying to instill in the team as a res- after the Dublin defeat in 2019 actually came to fruition and had actually been fixed that night last year in that All-Ireland semi-final? Yeah, well, I suppose you mentioned it there. If you if you go back to that game and what won us that game was, look, we came back very late into it. So, you know, there's, there's no doubt about it. But I'd say, especially in extra time, it was probably our legs that won it and the likes of Tommy Conroy and, you know, Ryan O'Donoghue and, and, and Oshin Mullins wasn't playing that day and uh, Owen McLaughlin before he went off. But the likes of these guys just giving us that extra energy that maybe we didn't have in the previous years and, and driving us on. And obviously Dublin were obviously pushing on a small bit more as well in their in their in their terms but um definitely it would have been I think that would have been the plan for James that he needs to do that after twenty nineteen. He needs to get fresh and your legs into the team to to give us that bit more energy um with, uh, like I said with Dublin in mind. That, that like that was such a seminal game, that Dublin game and just like I I'll never forget the, the atmosphere and the hunting down of Dublin to the point of submission in the end and it just seems incredibly flat column that it's gone from that to this. Like I I mean we were talking last week and I was saying God Mayo four to one to win any game at Crow Park, but like they were just so like it was such a tame exit. Like it, it almost seemed like an unfortunately um kind of forgettable end to his reign because like it shouldn't really be defined by that, I suppose. And that running game that you spoke about, I know there were injuries, but just it almost seemed to have just completely plateaued. Yeah, I hundred percent agree with you there, Johnny. I don't think he deserved to go out and look the lads of course gave it everything, but it just ended in a small bit of a whimper that performance and it, it to me it, it just it didn't go out in a typical you know, dived your boots on James Horn, what a James Horn team looks like performance, you know, and we have to give Kerry a, a lot of praise in that too. But the funny thing actually about yesterday's game is if you, you know, with on 50 minutes on the clock, if you're James Horn the night before that game, you're pro- that's pretty much how you probably would have planned it. You know, you're Kerry, if Kerry slightly rattles, they're not playing well, the momentum seems to be with your team. 
and you're getting loads of scoring opportunities but and you're obviously within striking distance of them a point or two behind but you can't convert your chances and obviously there's only so long you're going to get away against that against Kerry and once David Moore kicks their score to put them two or two up, they they just kick off from there. But I think you're right, Johnny. There was look, there was a number of factors. There was a huge hangover from the All Ireland last year. I don't think I don't think we can hide behind that. There was there certainly was in the county with supporters. Um, credit to the players, the start of the national league, they came back and they're firing, going really well. I think there were, there's a there's a draw in there in the first game, but against Donegal, but they. They, they win the first three or four games after the next three or four games after that and um, then the injury started just all started to get with Tommy Conroy and from there things just started to go downhill and once you lose a couple of crucial players like that um, you know just the whole morale of the squad you know the belief maybe and the confidence and that's the one thing that really struck me from from watching the team it looked devoid of confidence and sometimes when when you just take too many blows like Mayo have had with injuries certainly Ryan O'Donoghue I, I mentioned this on Sunday like if, if if Kerry are missing Sean O'Shea and David Clifford or if Dublin are missing Conor Callan or, or Keir Kikini then they look very different teams and for Mayo the two of the best forwards in the championship last year were Ryan O'Donoghue and Tommy Conroy we're missing them both and we're relying then on Killing coming in who was little to no football played all year, little to no football played all year after a very serious injury to try to try and come back flying, which was, you know, he done unbelievably well to do as well as he did, but it was never going to be that case. I, I expect him to be an awful lot better next year. But, you know, so many things factored into what was, when you look back now, a, a really, really disappointing year with the the flash performance against Galway and two unconvincing win in the qualifiers. And, and Johnny, as you said, then to go out with a small bit of a whimper against Kerry. I think James, you know, it was a sad way really for James to finish up. I think it's interesting, Johnny, how you talk about the pressure of being an internal manager in Mayo because he created that pressure himself. It wasn't there when he took over, as, as Colm touched upon, Mayo were a shambles in 2010. They were beaten by Longford. They were beaten by Sligo. It was what he did instantly that altered the perception of Mayo from, I think, hoping they might win in All-Ireland to at their peak over the last decade, Mayo people expecting that they would go and finally win that All-Ireland. And you look at the team that he created very quickly, and Cullum been a key part of that, like, some of Mayo's greatest ever players. If you're picking a Mayo all-time 15, probably half of them are from that generation, if not more. And, Colin, I'm just wondering on that sort of man management that he has, because, you know, we look now at Keith Higgins and Andy Moore and as, you know, some of Mayo's greatest of all time, but those guys were 25, 26 when Horan came in. Like, you know, they were very good players, but hadn't gone to that next level. How, and you had been, you know, as you say, dropped in the squad, how he brought very good players to, to greatness on a sort of one-to-one level. Yeah, that's that's a very good point, Nathan, because he did. He, he changed the careers and the path of so many Mayo players, like even like the likes of Alan Dillon and that. and So, so many players, when you go through it, um, literally just changed their careers by coming in and, Basically, just changing the mindset, but giving giving us the confidence. And he, what, he, what he was very happy to do is to to let players take lead and stuff. So once he he trusted lads, he, he you know he got a sense that things were moving, and he trusted lads really to take off from there. And he was very happy to watch on in the background and see what see what lads were doing. But you know, probably the best confidence I could, or sorry, compliment I, I could give James and 
Um, it might be a bit of a funny one, but you, you would just absolutely run through a brick wall for him, you know, and it's, that sometimes for a manager, that can be a difficult thing to, to get your players into that mindset for, 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 and if you, if you didn't deliver the performance or if you came in and you, and you lost the game, you really felt like you'd let him down, you know, and that, that's kind of how you, how you felt about, about it. Um, but that, you know, that he was so strong in so many aspects of his game and, you know, people people will give out about certain certain things, and, and like I said, I go back to the All Ireland final defeats. But James, as a manager, got a, a hell of a lot right, and an awful lot more right than he got wrong. And sometimes that that's all you can ask in a in a manager. So I was just going to ask you about the outside influence and maybe the difference between his two spells in charge, because you know. The last four years, if you were to take the second half against Dublin out of it, I think a lot of people would have serious question marks about big parts of it. And something that was missing was that outside influence, like Keane O'Neill, Donny Buckley, what they seem to bring. I'm just wondering why and if the, if you have any sense of why he didn't have that out, outside influence over the last few years. Yeah, it was certainly a, a change in mindset from James because like I said, he had Keane 2012 and then he moved on to Donny Buckley for 13 and 14 and Donny obviously stayed on after that, after James. Yeah, I think James, when he when he came back, he he just had it in his head that he wanted it to be a Mayo, a Mayo setup, and that that's that's what he did, and that's what he stuck to through his his term. Um, whether whether it was right or wrong, but what what all I can say about about the team that he had there during my time, they were absolutely brilliant. And they, like the likes of James Burke comes in, who I would have played with people with, like Mount he developed on in, in his four, five, three or four years there it was unbelievable, and he turned into a, a top top class coach. Um, so look, it is interesting. Obviously, Prince Kieran McDonald in after after a year as well, and Kieran added hugely to the setup as well with all his all his knowledge and and training methods. Um, but it is an interesting one. It's one I can't, I suppose, answer. I don't know why he didn't he didn't go to look for look to the outside. But all I can say is the boys that were in there were absolutely brilliant. Who do you want to see get the job, Colm? Uh, look at this loads of names been thrown about at the minute. Um, it, it's a funny one. I can feel it may we're going to stick internal. I'd be disri- I'd be surprised if we see an outside man. I know the likes of Jim McGuinness's name and, and Fitzmaurice's and Malachy O'Rourke's have been thrown about here at the minute. But I, I'd be surprised if we do see an outside man. I think it's going to be someone from inside the county. You know, obviously people are talking about Andy. I don't think it's fair to fair to talk about that at the minute when he's managing another county and, and Michael Solon that's with him as well would have been hugely successful under underage with Mayo. Um so them two will probably probably come together. But like I said they're with Leitrim. Um after that then look at I wouldn't be surprised if Stephen Rashford wants to be manager in Mayo again. He's a he's an extremely young man. Um he gone away to Donegal. Um I'm not sure what, what his story is there. We're continuing on next year. But I I wouldn't be surprised if, if Stephen you know, was meant to go back or wanted to go back, but it, you know he might wait for for another term. And then the the likes of Ray Dempsey was obviously one of the last couple of county titles with with Knockmore as well, and Mar Sheridan was may, maybe managed under twenties in the in the last couple of years. But um, like I said, I have a feeling it will be it will be staying inside the county. It's it's funny like to to even talk about this really considering how binary it is like success. How do you define success? Um, Mayo did not win all Ireland in either of his terms. Will his will his time as Mayo manager be deemed a success or a failure? 
Yeah, it's a very good question, Johnny. Yeah, I suppose it depends what you what you define success as. As you said, um, I I would I would say you'd have to look at it as being successful. And mm. I know an awful lot of people will be shouting down their you know their phones and their radios saying how how can it be successful if you didn't win the All Ireland? But I go back to what Nathan just said there about where he brought the Mayo teams from, and to be constantly competing at, at the highest level um, for to ten years or so. And what the, what Mayo players need to do now going forward, for both for next year and in the years after that, is to keep to that level and to be constantly competing because the standards are set now, and you can't we can't um, afford to go to a place where we aren't competing at the large stage of the championship. Absolutely, every single year. So that's that's what we need to do now as a county, and that's what the team needs to do to constantly look to improve, to drive on, and to always be knocking at the door at the, at the latter stage of the championship. And I think that's something. That James um, obviously has started. So look at I I I'd look at it as a very successful term. Um, I think we've got six kind of titles in a, a national league, and like I said, always challenging um, at the latter latter stages of the championship. Just finally, for me, it's probably not a not a bad prospect now, or not a bad time for the incumbent in terms of you know they're at a little bit of a low. Expectations have been dampened a little bit, um, uh, as opposed to maybe taking over twelve months ago. Yeah, quite possibly so. But look, there is a lot of doom and gloom at the minute out there in Mayo. But I, and I've, I've read some some national media stuff over the last couple of days, and I know that like Mark O'Shea I read yesterday has completely written Mayo off, saying that you know their their time is done. But I I wouldn't look at it that way. Look at it, if I was the new manager uh, coming into Mayo, I, the first thing I'd be doing is picking up the phone to the older guys, the likes of the league teams and Aidan O'Shea's, and making sure they're they're getting on board for next year because they are they are vital vital cogs for the for the Mayo team but when you go through it after that then you know you're obviously hoping that the injured boys are back and you go through the team after that there is still the nucleus there of a, of a very very good team that can compete with certainly the four teams that's there in the All-Ireland um, stages this year so uh, that's the way I'd be looking uh, looking at it I think there's a there's a nucleus there for a very very good team if the if the new man comes in you know like I said first key port call get on to the, the, the older lads make sure they're back on board for next year and look to look to drive on from there and like you said it could be a case that a, a new voice is exactly what the lads need um, to push on and give them a bit of fresh energy to look look to go again next year Colin Boyle great stuff as ever thanks a million for joining us this morning thanks a million lads Cheers. Uh, Colin Boyle, Mayo legend there on the line, reflecting on the end of the Horan era. Nathan, it sounds there as if there's a, a real chance that you won't have any significant retirements over the course of this winter. Is, is that what everybody wants? Oh, absolutely. I think because the most likely players to retire would be Lee Keegan, Kevin McLaughlin, and I think you just have to look at Lee Keegan's performances this season to show he still has plenty to offer a Mayo jersey. I don't think Killian O'Connor having, you know, Works so hard to come back from injury, is going to step away. Aidan O'Shea's had one of his best seasons in a Mayo jersey. So, no, I think uh, you want to keep those players. Like, it's, a, it's a tough gig because of what James Horn achieved. I think when you look at what Horn has done first as a Mayo player and as a manager, you know, he's the most important figure in Mayo football probably since Sean Flanagan. And when you talk about success, yes, every response to this will be, show us your All-Ireland medals. But 
you know, there's something greater than that. Walk around Crow Park whenever Mayo are playing now compared to when he took over and the sheer numbers, the sheer pride that Mayo people have in their team. And Horn was the one who created that. But he also created an insane level of expectation now. And whoever does come in and, you know, I think if this was 12 months time, we would all be saying Andy Morn, absolutely. Uh, but the fact that he's only in Leitrim a year may change that. But whoever does come in, uh, is going to be expected to be getting to all Ireland semi-finals straight away, and you know time will tell whether that group has it in them. As I say, I think the last couple of years, that was one half against Dublin got them to, to an all Ireland final, and that to me felt as much of a Dublin capitulation as a Mayo stepping up the year before was the COVID year. The year before that, Dublin looked a million miles ahead of them, and they looked a good bit behind Kerry. So I think there's a lot of work for whoever comes in to do to keep that momentum going of consistently reaching. You know, All-Ireland semi-finals, All-Ireland finals. Is there a chance the new manager comes in? Like, I'm just looking, Lee Keegan's 33 in this year, Aidan O'Shea's 32 this year, which is old for inter-county football now at the top level. You have to say it's just not, it's a no It's no country for all men. Is there a chance the new manager comes in and says, yeah, your time is done to some of these, like, marquee players. Lee Keegan, definitely one of the best footballers I've ever seen. Or is that is that going to be a step too far? Is, is there, like... You know, that narrative that you actually, if, if Mayo are done here, you need to just start fresh and just start with younger players. Oh, that feels like it would be a particularly idiotic thing to do to mm. go in and say to Lee Keegan, there's no room in this dressing room for you. You know, on the outside, a lot of people would look at Aidan O'Shea and think, you know, he was Horan's boy. And, you know, would, would mm. getting rid of Aidan O'Shea signify some massive shift in Mayo mentality? I don't think so. I think you have to look at his performances this year and say, you know, he is still good enough. I think you talk to people down in Mayo about club football. Aidan O'Shea stands out every single year. So I think if you take away people's uh, opinions, and he's clearly marmite for an awful lot of people, he deserves to be in a Mayo team, a Mayo squad. So like, these guys know the culture. I don't think I don't think the senior players are holding them back in any way. I think it's trying to get that next generation uh, consistently fit because that's obviously been a problem over the last few years. Like Mayo have had a lot of injury issues, and finding more forwards, like finding forwards who are fit who can take that burden off Killian O'Connor. But you know the minors are in an All Ireland final in a couple of weeks' time. There has been success at underage levels. So, and I think the way Gaelic football has gone. You know, fitness and strength and conditioning is so important. Mayo are at that level that Dublin, Kerry, Tyrone, Donegal, uh, Derry have now managed to reach that, that an awful lot of counties struggle to. So you just hope whoever comes in firstly is able to maintain that. But there may well be a tough couple of years and for whatever manager that is, I think it's, you know, the Mayo football community is pretty harsh. I think they need they need success or you're under pressure straight away. Are you worried that Galway are going to go ahead and just win this year's All-Ireland? <laughs> this is the thing. Galway, like, don't go to Cove Park at all. Just rock up and win it. There, there, there you go. It's going to happen, Nathan, is it? God, that is that is the fear, isn't it? That It would be far worse now than uh, even 98 when Mayo got to back-to-back finals, having had, you know, sort of a decade of Mayo dominance in Connacht for Galway to somehow sneak in. It's hard to see after last weekend. You know, are they going to beat Dublin? Are they going to beat Kerry? I don't see it. Are they going to beat Derry, Johnny? Um, I, I actually, I, I really, really fancy Galway to have a good chance this year. I don't like Dublin at all. I think Kerry will beat Dublin. Um, I think we'll beat Derry, probably come up short against Kerry, but um, the, honestly, the belief that they would have garnered from even Conor Gleeson from like, what a nightmare of a day. And as much as he didn't really do anything apart from look relatively big in the penalty shootout, I mean, the belief Galway will have gotten, like they, they threw away that game three or four times, a game that they were comfortably the better team in, and the quality of Galway shooting. And I think they're, I don't think they have a fear in them, you know, and I think uh, I give them a really, really good chance. I really do. I think they're overpriced uh, in the four horse race. 
Yeah, uh, I think that there's like I, I think that the double semi-finals are both absolute coin tosses. The other question, then, Johnny, it's not a coin toss between Dublin and Kerry, like. Dublin or I carry well, I think I think given some of the uncertainty around fitness, if Dublin's got if Dublin have a fully a full deck to choose from, I don't think they do. And well, yeah, from what I'm hearing, and as long as as long as um, you know Clifford's fit, which presumably he will be, I, I fancy Kerry should have. Um, just a quick word on Galway this weekend. Are you giving them no hope at all? It's just, I mean, there's nothing to suggest in this season's form. Like nothing to suggest they can beat Limerick. I mean, they've. I think they've. They're, they're, they've. Go. We have too many players that are sort of six, seven out of ten at the moment. If Conor Whelan weren't playing, Limerick could probably beat them by ten points. It's, I, I, I honestly cannot see it. Like unless Henry can pull some. I think they've just too many players who are just not quite up to it. Um, and let's be honest, like they were blessed to be Cork. And Cork were hammered by Limerick, really, in the first round of the championship, first round in Munster. Can't see it, to be honest. Um, but no, no expectation. Every tip still will be going for Limerick, but uh, justifiably, I, I can't see it at all, to be honest. Uh, we want to chat uh, a little bit about League of Ireland. We'll chat golf in a moment. We may have live footage from a member of Team OTB on the course at Mount Juliet this morning. We'll uh, get there in the next 20, 25 minutes. But just to circle back to the League of Ireland, lads, I guess uh, we were looking ahead to Bowes against Rovers last week. Rovers end up winning the game 1-0. They're 10 points clear at the top of the table. Dundalk with two games in hand, obviously, in that situation. Next week, though, is the start of the season-defining patch for Rovers, isn't it? This isn't... Like, I mean, maybe Dundalk do win those two games in hand and we do have a proper title race, but it is always going to be at the end of the season defined on how they do in Europe, right? Yeah, like I think, um, you know, Stephen Bradley, it's a, it's a, 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 a very challenging time in his life. Like he has, you know, he's, he's worried about his son and coming into that almost defining part of his reign to an extent with Shamrock Rovers notwithstanding like he's had an unbelievable time but um, you know he was under so much pressure early on and he's turned them into really really good champions double champions and um, it'll be a massive success regardless of what happens in Europe but I think the chapter about Europe uh, in the in the autobiography or the biography um, will be will be very important because I think he feels that they haven't achieved what they could have achieved in Europe and if you if you break down what Rovers have done in Europe it's it's not bad I mean they've they've claimed some scalps they've done well in good games but I think what was uh, intriguing the other night was Jack Byrne Danny Mandroyu and Graham Burke did not start um, two of them didn't play at all against St. Pat's and they were still the better team but you, you just get the sense even from talking to them afterwards that so much is geared towards Europe and this game against the Burnings in Malta I mean victory ensures that they're essentially playing in Europe well into August in some shape or form and I think that's the bare minimum they have to win this game uh, and take it from there and I, I don't think they'll have left any stone unturned the one thing I will say is they still have massive pace problems with the team they played uh, on Monday night and they will probably change this up they're, they, they, they're, they're not a, f- a quick team at all and I think this found them out in Europe last year um, and the players off the bench like Amaku to come in but you'd, you'd wonder, is he in the form? Like, Gaffney's in great form, but again, he's not the quickest player in the world, and they've no real pace in midfield. Andy Lyons is their quickest and possibly n- nearly their best player this season. That could be a problem. I don't know what you think of that, Nathan, because it was, it was obvious the other night. I mean, Aaron Green's goal was great, but like Aaron Green's pace is, is basically gone, and it was more of an dipe into Pat's defending, I think, that he got the goal. But that's the one thing I'd worry about in Europe, that they're, they just don't have a second gear if they need to you know, go, go down that route. Yeah, pace of players, but I think pace of play as well, because at times it can feel quite pedestrian. They are more than happy to just recycle the ball consistently 
and grind teams down, which works in the League of Ireland because they've better players than everybody else. And you're right, like this will define them what happens in Europe because you know I don't think there's any question they've been the best team this season over the last couple of seasons. But you know, are they a great team? I I think that the jury's still out on that. Like we've been waiting since week one of the league for them to ignite to come and demolish teams and they're still sort of getting these 1-0, 2-0 victories where the opposition have a couple of chances and it still doesn't feel as though Bradley's quite sure as to what his best attacking side is. Mm. Obviously, he's not helped by the fact that Jack Byrne, you know, has had, I think he's only played 190 minutes all season in the league and, you know, he was not involved last night. Uh, is he going to be fit for for Europe next week. So it, it, it just feels though they're missing a bit of a, an X factor at the moment. But there is the possibility that they've been trying to prime, that everything has been built towards this part of the season, that they've sort of trusted that their talent would get them through the first half of the League of Ireland season. And now, fitness-wise, that they're ready for the next two months when they're going to have two games a week and huge European games. But it, it, there just seems to be a bit of an inconsistency in that, you know, Graham Burke who's been injured last few weeks, comes in, comes off the bench, makes an impact, gets a start. Doesn't quite happen for him. You know, Mandreo has been brilliant at times over the last few weeks, but needs to do it every single game. The midfielders, again, Dylan Watts at times has been exceptional, one of the best players in the league. At times, it's not quite happening for him. So I, I think our entire judgment of where the Shamrock Rovers side are compared to, say, Dundalk of five years ago will depend on what happens in Europe. Just a couple of other uh, bits and pieces. We got uh, former Pats defender Luke McNally signing for Burnley from Oxford for 1.5 million euro this week. Uh, have, have you seen much of this guy, Nathan? Uh, not a huge amount. No, I think Johnny will have probably seen a good bit of him back in the league before he went over. Like this is interesting for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it's you know quite a lot of money to be spending. Um, on a player from the lower leagues from Burnley's point of view and I think there's going to be a nice little knock-on for uh, Pats out of it as well Uh, but it's obviously going to then probably uh, lead on to Nathan Collins leaving uh, Burnley that he'll be Nathan Collins' replacement at Burnley uh, for you know if the fees reported are true Nathan Collins is going to become the most expensive Irish player of all time over the next few months so anything that sees good Irish players progressing to another level is obviously a good thing we've got any amount to centre halves uh, but I don't know Johnny from your sense was this something when Luke McNally went over you thought yeah destined for well what, what what's it going to be championship football now yeah, I, I, I'm not I'm not overly surprised. I, I remember it's funny I mentioned Aaron Green. I remember talking to Tim Clancy after a game, Drawed ever playing played Rovers. I think they ended up losing two or three nil, but did quite well in the game. Um when they were could have been a cup game at the time. Drawed were probably in the first division and he was saying like Jesus he completely out sprinted Aaron Green and at the time Aaron Green was pretty quick, like it'd be two or three years ago. Um and the move away then happened or whatever and uh, I did a piece with him actually, Nathan, in it was towards the end of the season, around April, because they were playing um, MK Dons and he was going to be marking Troy Parrott. So I did a piece for the 42 on it and um, it got very little traction. I was like, Jesus, must be like, maybe people just don't read my articles or maybe Luke McNally. He's so, down, he's so down the pecking order in terms of Irish centre-backs that like people aren't, like he hasn't really attracted that much attention because I was talking to like Oxford, I was talking to an Oxford fan and he's like, this this lad is our best, um, our best prospect and he will probably get a move. And that particular game, I think he did very well against Roy Parrott. Um, but I, I, I was really taken by just how utterly sound he was. Like, he's so humble down to earth. He was talking about his mother coming over and bringing him, like, black pudding from Ireland. And he was really, like, happy to kind of keep the connection with home. Still follows the League of Ireland. The following day, he was on the bus showing Pats and... Um, 
Rovers on the on the phone to I think their goalkeeper and he was saying what do you make of the standard of this league I really like it um, but the, the the interesting one then is after the uh, after the Colin stats came up from the game um, where he clocked the 34 uh, kilometres an hour um, before the in, before the goal or after the goal or whatever um, I was like Jesus would you beat this lad in a sprint because McNally is really really quick like really quick and I imagine he's he's he could be the fastest player um basically in the Ireland squad if you were there he's so he's so quick and that's a big asset of his game he's really athletic gets a lot of goals as well and I think it's a great move for him I'm absolutely delighted for him as as we all know our centre back situation is really uh, we're, we're, it's a bounty of riches at the moment but uh, he was he was guaranteed to get a move to the higher to a higher level and the knock on effect of where Collins goes will be fascinating but um, I'm delighted for him I think he's going to have a great career and only going to get better as well under company where do we want to see Nathan Collins go uh, Wolves Leicester City the two of the clubs that have been named as, as possible links yeah I, I d- maybe Wolves like I don't know because they're just they're far more defensively orientated team but I don't know what Nathan thinks uh, yeah Wolves uh, certainly last season at times I, I don't want to say they were dull but you know they were based around a very strong defence and Romain Sice has left so there's probably a space there Connor Cody's obviously a very experienced defender uh, Leicester probably have a higher ceiling you know, last season was a disappointment, but I think that in a huge amount of injuries, it, there's probably more options at the back for Leicester. Though he probably have a bit more of a fight for his place. Uh, you know, Fafana is back fit. Johnny Evans is still there as well. You know, maybe he takes Sionchu's place, uh, but it does seem he's going to one of those teams that's sort of between sixth and tenth uh, in the Premier League, which you know is a huge, huge step up for a guy who's only played really half a season of, of Premier League football. So I think it's. It's brilliantly exciting because I, I did think initially that you know he might be stuck at Burnley for this season and that may not have been a bad thing with me and Tarkowski leaving. Uh, but it seems you know, Burnley, there's a lot going on there in terms of the ownership that they realise they want to strike now while he's in such form and and so well touted. So you know, either a Wolves or a Leicester look like good, solid Premier League teams right now. I think Leicester, though, have the higher ceiling, could well find themselves you know, playing a decent standard of European football again over the next couple of years if Brendan Rodgers stays at the club. So, yeah, fascinating to see how it develops. But like, what a story. Like, what a story from, again, shows what you can do in such a short period of time. I know people expected a lot when he came from Stoke and captaining the team at such a young age. And, you know, Burnley spent a lot of money to bring him from Stoke. But to be at that stage already, uh, where he can go and you know become a centre half at one of the best teams in the Premier League, is is huge for Irish football. They have just kicked off in Hamilton. It is Ireland against the Maori All Blacks. We'll keep you up to speed on that throughout the morning. Keith Wood will be with us at full time for analysis on Ireland's first of five games there. So obviously, uh, test number one is this Saturday, but this warm-up game, uh, which may actually see a few uh, players who are going to face the All Blacks this Saturday uh, take to the field in Hamilton, as I say. So just a minute played there, still scoreless. Uh, Nathan, just quickly on the golf, uh, Park Harrington uh, returning home with uh, his first big win as a as a senior player I guess and he's been talking about the live tour he's been uh, questioned about it at the Irish Open and it's really interesting you know talking about the, the bravery of some of the players to actually stand up to this and overnight we've had news that there's going to be a, a joint venture between the DP World Tour and the, the PGA Tour or, or more of a joint venture a, a little bit of a, a life support for the European Tour I guess 
Yeah, there was a lot of speculation that perhaps the European Tour were in a pretty dire state and it's only going to get worse with the arrival of Live Golf. Uh, may go into partnership with Live Golf. They did play European Tour events in Saudi Arabia up until the last couple of years, so there was already a relationship there. Uh, but they had a strategic alliance with the PGA Tour and they have doubled down on that. And what it all means basically is I think an acceptance from the European Tour that they're now a feeder tour for the PGA. Like It's been that way for over a decade at this stage. We've seen it with Irish golfers. The second you get success, the second you get the opportunity to play in the PGA Tour, that's where you play the majority of your golf. Uh, this opens up uh, that the top 10 golfers in Europe every year will get their PGA Tour card, uh, which does mean that the best players are absolutely going to leave every season. But it means there's going to be more world ranking points. It means there's going to be greater investment in some of the events on the European Tour. So like next week, for example, the Scottish Open own is co-sanctioned. So an awful lot of the top Americans are going to play in the Scottish Open because it will count towards the PGA Tour as well. So I think we can expect more events like that. Uh, it does mean for some of the other events outside of that, the future is probably a little bit uncertain, including the Irish Open. Can that become a co-sanctioned event and get some of the best players in the world? Like the field this week is, you know, if you took Shane Lowry and Seamus Power out, it's it's pretty average. I think Tyrrell Hatton might be the only top 50 player in the world in there. Uh, we've already got a bit of a flare-up in Hamilton. We've got a situation where the full-back for the Maori All Blacks, Zaren Sullivan, flung a ball at the head of Kieran Frawley after uh, a bit of a tasty tackle from Bundiaki. The big news so far, and I appreciate we're only two minutes and 20 seconds into this, is that Kean Healy is already on the pitch. So we've got an injury already in this tour. Jeremy Lockman has been taken off. It looked like a, a head injury. We'll get, uh, confirm that in a moment. And Kean Healy is on. So Keen Healy's going to have to play 78, 79 minutes of this game, which is absolutely not ideal whatsoever. So um, we'll see if that's um, a temporary substitution, but it looked like it, it may not be. So Keen Healy looks like he's going to have to go the distance there. Two and a half minutes played. Uh, still yet to be a score in that game. So OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Ireland were back in action on Monday and there's a Euros on the horizon. So that can only mean one thing. The Koi Gig Pogged is back and Kathleen and Karen are ready to go. Uh, it was a 9-0 win for Ireland against Georgia and there were two very different international goal scoring firsts. So it was only a matter of time for 17-year-old Abby Larkin on her fourth cap and 100 more caps down the line. There was also a first for Ireland stalwart Neil, Neil Fahey and in Karen's eyes it couldn't have been more fitting. Take a look. OTB AM Right, it is time to go to Mount Juliet to uh, Ger Gilroy who's got the invite to the Irish Open Pro-Am. How are things down there, Ger? They're pretty good. I mean, um, I'm just surprised that none of the Golf Weekly crew are here. I don't understand that, you know, they run Ireland's preeminent golf podcast and I, I don't see them around. I've been, been looking around for Nathan or for Joe or for Fionn, but not, I don't know what happened. Maybe their invite got lost in the post. Well, what did what did happen, do you think? Did talk us through the intricacies of how you get an invite to the Irish Open Pro-Am? I don't know. You just wait. You wait to be asked. It's like it's like the I don't know the honors list or uh, the Nijon Donaire in France. You can't volunteer for it. You have to like you know. It's, it's impolite to lobby. Maybe they were lobbying too much. Quite quite possibly, but it, like, it's am I right in saying in the last uh, proper Irish Open pre-COVID, Joe Malloy won closest to the pin. Is that at the Irish Open? Am I making that up? I'm not sure. That's, that's, uh, that, I mean, I wouldn't be terribly surprised. He is, he is now he's wrestling with Colin Malani for the title of uh, best golfer on the team. So yeah, I'm not, like I mean, I just don't understand that after such a good performance that you get snubbed on on this occasion. Maybe they've been signed up by the Saudis. Oh, there you go. Actually, maybe that's, maybe that's it. There's a breakaway. We just haven't heard yet. What's what's it like down there? How does the course look? 
Uh, well, there was a downpour yesterday, but I think um, today so far it's uh, significantly better. The weather conditions, I, I mean, uh, I can't turn off the background shading so you'd be able to see that it's actually quite sunny now, but the storm clouds are rolling in. And like today's a day for everybody just to have a bit of crack and take it easy. Tomorrow's when the real business starts. Who are you playing with? Uh, a guy called John Catlin, who mm-hmm. uh, keen viewers of the Irish Open will know, won it two years ago. Uh, when it was up in Galgorm in the COVID shortened season, um, one of those kind of below the radar Irish Opens, but he is a, a, a recent champion. His picture's up on the wall of champions as you drive in. So, um, yeah, interested to see exactly. 31 year old from America went to um, University of New Mexico. So, you know, we'll have plenty of uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul things to talk about. Absolutely. Are, are you nervous? Like, I mean, this is, this is like a big moment, isn't it? Playing with a former Irish Open champion. Um, I'm not nervous because I haven't done any work. It's the opposite of the triathlon where I've done a little bit of work and I was worried that I might die with this. Like, the worst that can happen is that I might accidentally kill somebody in the crowd, but I'd have to be hitting the ball very hard and very well to be able to do that. And that's just not, that's not on the radar at the moment. What about just like embarrassing yourself on a golf level in general? Does that, that's not something that, that worries you? I think that's inevitable. You know, I've, I've, I've resigned. Okay. I'm resigned to my faith this day that so that's definitely going to happen and so once you make an accommodation with that like everything after that's a bonus so okay. uh, the tyranny of low expectations generally does not serve you well in life but when it comes to playing golf in the pro-am it's exactly the right approach what are you playing off? 18 18 I, okay. I, don't, I don't yeah I don't play enough golf okay I thought did somebody say I think it was Mick who said to me once that Jared's the dark horse of the team OTB. Like, obviously, doesn't work on it anywhere near as hard enough as anybody else. But natural putting stroke—you could have been a contender. You need a lot of time. You yeah. need to be able to commit to playing five times a week if you're going to be any good. You know, and it's like a lot of time to give up and not do other things. One last, one last question: Who's the most famous person you've seen there so far? Uh, well, Johnny Marta. Johnny Marta is like world famous, one of the greatest jockeys of all time. Uh, he's in a he's in a three ball with um, Tomas O'Shea and Ken Doherty. That would be a lot of crack yeah. to be in. Uh, and I'd say there's some good gossip going on there. Um, uh, Dermot Whelan, of course, uh, a, a stalwart of these things now. Um, that's about it so far. I've only I've only just arrived though. Like I can you know I can show you the empty breakfast hall. There's nobody here yet because they're all out. Yeah, it sounds like Port, uh, Port Camp. I think it probably does. You know, but you would expect to see him here so. That's not really a surprise, is it? Well, best of luck today. Hope it's a hugely successful endeavour for you. I, I can hear the jealousy in your voice there, Owen. I mean, you were you were standing in the field watching some young fella hold his phone up going, any weed uh, the other night and uh, I'm having breakfast in Manchuria. I guess that's the any divergent weed? paths our lives are on at the moment. What was it? Yeah. Any, any weed? Yeah, just, you know, those things that you can do in your phone where you can put up like big text and then like, you throw it up backwards so that everybody behind you so can see Johnny's it. Interested. He's been sitting there yeah. going, what was the point of this whole item? Certainly not at 20 past eight, 8 in the like, morning. But uh, yeah, that was, must be an interesting night. Yeah, I don't know if you got sorted or not. Uh, the phone was up for a long, long time. Jerry, um, enjoy. Enjoy. And uh, don't embarrass yourself. Good luck. No chance. Good luck. <laughs> that's the spirit. Yeah. That, like, I mean, I don't know. I would be pretty uh, self-conscious swinging a golf club around ex-pros. Oh, sorry, current pros. God, I was like, I, I gave golf a very brief go uh, when I was in holiday in the states, and I was, I was so bad, like I couldn't literally not hit the ball. I never, never went back. That was about twenty five years ago.
You look like you'll have a good uh, short to medium game. Yeah, my my short to medium prospects were that I never never set foot in the on a golf course again or any anything like never never held it in my hand. I was terrible at hurling as well. Like so, maybe it's just a hand holding something in the hand job. I was just useless, useless. I hear you're good at football. Oh, it's tricky not, winger. I wouldn't be that now. I wouldn't, wouldn't be a bad footballer. Like, but, but a, again, wide, a wide player. No, it'd be more of a kind of read the game type fella, like and play the play the short and size Keno type passes. What's your position? Um, like somewhere in an astroturf pitch. I haven't played eleven size since I was like twenty or something. I think it was a right back back in the day. I it's kind of a regret that I um, yeah, went to college and then it was just wasn't really practical because you were play, you were working every weekend. This is the thing about sports journalism. You're, I moved to Dublin. There was no such thing as remote working in those days. Where and. Um, you just couldn't get back from Dublin to play football at the weekend so that was the end of my uh, short lived career obviously what about yeah. yourself Colm? Hmm? Did you play? Uh, golf? Football Football sorry yes very badly very very badly Gaelic or? No I see if you had a soccer ball in Kerry they'd just come along and burst it <laughs> brutally and your, and your bubble Foreign games here mm. Garrison games out How many Kerry awesome. people were up on Sunday by the way? 12? Yeah. 13? <laughs> Like I was thinking of this. I mean, there are only literally there are literally a handful of games all year that really matter. Like, so if you're a hardcore fan in the Premier League, you go every week or every you go to load of away games. Like, to Kerry people go to any games that aren't they'll, in Kerry. Like, they, no, they'll travel to Dublin now. They go to the. They will even go to the Dublin game actually. Surely, yeah, I'm not sure. I know there's a like there's obviously a cost of like accommodation crisis, which is a joke. Yeah, so you pick you like you. Op- I, I know it's optimistic. You, you you optimistically pick that. Hopefully, there might be two games and even if it's like one is kind of enough cost wise at the moment isn't it especially with the compressed season and I can absolutely like uh, see why less people fewer people would be uh, coming up for, for games this time than, than say 2019 for example um, I, I don't know it's, a, it's, an, it's always an interesting one it's always something that, that Kerry people get criticised for there was to be fair a, a, a fine crowd near me it didn't feel like Mayo had completely uh, overwhelmed them numbers wise I, 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 I assumed that they did but it didn't feel it didn't sound like it noise wise no, uh, well uh, like obviously like May, uh, there must have been the guts of 40,000 or mad people in Croker it was unbelievable um, but it, it didn't sound like Mayo it, it seemed like Mayo actually didn't really believe at all this year they, they didn't come up in the numbers either yeah yeah no for sure and um, I'm sure we'll get uh, stuck into that as the, the weeks and months go on and that new successor is found uh, to James Horn once again Galway Re- Kerry final though I think it is written in the stars I'd be, I'd be hopeful I'd be fairly confident that's what it will be yeah clip that as we look forward <laughs> to that. Derry Dublin in a clip couple that. of weeks yeah. uh, Colm good morning Owen Johnny you, Johnny was talking about hand uh, things in hand job for sports <laughs> there a moment ago so we're uh, we're keeping that theme going yeah. and uh, we're talking tennis yesterday was a pretty dramatic day at Wimbledon mm. to say the least last night people would have been watching Serena get dumped out by Harmony Tan Harmony Tan of France her first ever Wimbledon match oh, what a first ever Wimbledon match what a name what a match Same, beats yeah. the goat Harmony Tan um, yeah heartbreaking stuff if you're a Serena Williams fan if you're a fan of tennis in general her last match before yesterday's match was exactly 12 months ago the first round of Wimbledon where she retired injured she made her singles comeback yesterday had played dub, uh, doubles with Anjabar in Eastbourne but this is her first singles match lads she was serving for the match at 5-4 in the third and final set she was two points from victory um, she lost that and then went into a tie break and she was four love up in the tie break but she has lost that match and then of course the eternal question is is this the end for Serena Williams not just the Wimbledon but in general 40 years old she turned 41 in August after the match, she talked about her prospects of playing at the US Open. Of course, she's on 23 Grand Slams. She wants to out, uh, outdo Margaret Court, and I think the game in general wants her to do that too. 
but last night very heartbreaking because she was so close to victory and the crowd it was raucous positively raucous at centre court didn't finish till after half past ten last night and uh, it kind of had the atmosphere of a semi-final and after, right after the match the commentator on BBC said it maybe looked caught up with the adrenaline of it but was saying that could be the greatest first round match in Wimbledon history and for tension alone it's hard to argue yeah, especially given the the standard of player and the narrative around it. I like I definitely feel that Serena will go again at the US Open. Like he look at her comments and like she's talking about really wanting to hit the practice courts mm. after last night and there definitely seems to be like a, one of the things she said she was like it feels like it's kind of like okay Serena you can do this if you want. So it kind of maybe that there was kind of like a lack of motivation which is kind of understandable when you've got well over 20 Grand Slam titles over the last little while and just getting that taste of Grand Slam tennis back again is like, okay, this is actually something that uh, I sort of forgot how much I love. I, don't think she, I, don't, I think the only reason that she's still playing tennis is to get that record. Yeah. And I don't think she's um, shied away from that fact too. I think, I, I'd say she'd long since retired if she either wasn't close to the record or had easily eclipsed it. But she's, you know, she's had a frustrating last few years in terms of when she came back after her maternity leave, she reached four Grand Slam finals. Mm. and she lost all four of them. So if she had won any one of those four, she could have packed it in. So that's how tantalising it is for her. But, I mean, the crowd were so on her side, and it's funny because you have great sports people that when they burst onto the scene, everybody's very excited by them. Oh, my God, this talent is generational and can't look away. And then eventually, at some point, everybody gets sick of their dominance. And that happened for a while with Serena. People weren't really going for her. They were going for whoever she was against. But it's come full circle now. It's like, well, we're going to appreciate greatness, and she is the greatest of all time. So let's appreciate it while we can. And, you know, last night could have been one of those moments where when she waved to the crowd at the end that we don't know if we're going to see her again on central court, just like we didn't know 12 months ago when she came back. Uh, Ireland have uh, conceded a try against the Mario All Blacks. It is 8-3 after 16 minutes. They've literally just gone over the line there after uh, a line out and a, a bit of sustained pressure. Uh, it is uh, Sullivan, the number 15, the fullback for the Mario All Blacks. Uh, Jar- Zaren Sullivan, who's uh, gone over the line there for them. So uh, Ireland had gone 3-0 up uh, through a Kieran Ferrari penalty. But uh, the big news there is that uh, Keane Healy's had to come in. Jeremy Lachman's gone off. On the tennis column, uh, and just sticking with the women's side for just a moment, yeah. you talk about greatness. Uh, how close is Svantec to becoming an actual dominant player in women's tennis? Because that has been the, the cliche thrown out in the, the vacuum left by Serena Williams, is that this has been chaotic. It's been wonderful. Uh, it's been chaotic. You just don't know who's going to win. But, but is, is, the, is Svantec about to, to go and dominate? It looks like it. And it, that's, this has really only happened since the Australian Open. Like She was, I think, world number seven in around February and now she's just comfortably world number one because she's won 36 matches in a row she's mm. eclipsed um, she's beaten Venus Williams record so she's won the most amount of games in a row in the 21st century uh, Venus did it right at the start of the century in 2000 uh, which the thing with Svantec is the matches aren't even close on like she's just obliterating people yeah. since Love 6-3 that was yesterday at Wimbledon and Grass would be you know she wouldn't be too comfortable on Grass she doesn't have much experience at Wimbledon to be honest and she said that afterwards but the, the thing with Svantec is She's about to become what great players are in that her opponents are afraid of her reputation. So she doesn't even need to play that well. I mean, the start of the second set, it was interesting. Barney René wrote about it in The Guardian. He reported on the match. He's always such a great read because he doesn't just do match reports. He always brings a bit of colour to it. And he said, you know, Svantec won the first set six love and it was quite terrifying to watch. And then she seemed to get a bit bored by herself. And at the start of the second, she started hitting unforced errors. And it was just to wake herself up almost. And she won that second set 6-3, which is, you know, relatively competitive. But that's the best that her opponents can hope for at the moment. And uh, I think it's actually a good thing for women's tennis because we often talk about 
20 to 30 players in contention to win every Grand Slam every year. But it actually needs a star now, especially in light of Serena pulling away, you know. What's uh, tennis's kind of Polish history? Like, she's... she's Yeah, she's standing out big yeah. time. Yeah, I mean, definitely in the modern game, no one strikes my mind open to correction on that, but nobody strikes my mind straight away of being a dominant Polish player in my lifetime anyway. Mm. Um, so, yeah, she's come through. I mean, like, Eastern Europe in general, like, provides a lot of great tennis players and they come through academies and they often get scholarships in America. But she's standing out and flying the flag for her country big time. And that was the big thing when she won the French Open in 2020 was she was doing it for Poland, you know. Mm. And she's a, she's a big patriot. Uh, just to update you on the rugby, Jeremy Lachman's actually back on the pitch. I've uh, just seen him there, so uh, apologies. Uh, Kean Healy did come on, but uh, it was obviously just a temporary HIA substitution. But Lachman just had the ball in hand, so he's back on after his HIA. He did look a bit shook going off the pitch, but he is back on. So uh, Kean Healy uh, returns to the bench. It's uh, Mary 8th. Uh, Ireland 3 after 19 minutes there just on the, the men's side then mm-hmm. Colm we've got to talk about Nick Kyrgios I mean like this is he is our favourite tennis star on OTBAM hmm? are you the discussion of Nick is back he's back in his favourite tournament Wimbledon yeah he beat Paul Job yesterday Paul Job of England in a 5 set or really shouldn't have gone to 5 sets should have beaten him way more comfortably than that but uh, it went that way but you know the story of the match wasn't really the, the actual game itself even though Job played very well but it was Kyrgios being Kyrgios and um, some fans were abusing him um, calling him you know a poor player but in more colourful language and when Kyrgios won the match he spat in their direction as he walked away and openly admitted that in the post-match press conference had no problem saying that it was like yeah I spat in their direction I mean if they were supporting me I wouldn't do that you understand but I would do it because you know they weren't supporting me Mm. and he also uh, had a go at uh, the age profile of the line judges and we actually have an audio clip of that it's quite entertaining take a listen bit of a interaction with yeah. the line judges and at one point I think you said you're in your 90s you can't see the ball no I said most of the umpires are older and I just don't think that's ideal when you're playing a sport of such small margins because factually people that are younger have better eyesight okay. do you not think that's appropriate when you're playing at a sport for hundreds and thousands of dollars, do you not think that we should have people that are really ready to call the ball in and out? Is it an age thing, though? I mean, well, factually, does someone have a better eyesight when they're younger? Andy, we're going to necessarily question. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what do you mean, not necessarily? <laughs> but what does he mean? What do you mean, not necessarily? But they probably, I don't know if they have to Okay, but the just that, that, that specific thing, I hit a ball in, Right. the old man called it out, it was in. So, so arguably, if the guy was 40, he may not have called that out. Yeah, but he may be 60 and may have 20-20 vision. You don't know that. But in that case, he got the call wrong. Okay, we're going to move on to... Young people um, get the call wrong, don't they? Sure. Okay. Uh, yeah. I don't understand the question, though. Uh, sure, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that he was eating. What's that line in... And just looking it up here. Homer Simpson. Dad, you're an old man now. You're a very old man now and old people are useless. I mean, what is he? he like, he's just trying to imply that because he's old, the guy can't see. I mean, uh, like, he's also I, eating He's also eating during the yeah, press conference. You've got to refuel, John. you got to refuel. <laughs> and, I mean, has, has your eyesight not deteriorated the older you've got? Well, it was actually, wasn't great at, like, 17. Um, but, like, I mean, that's not to say... Oh, he's just saying that everyone with... He's essentially trying to imply that everyone with old age has inferior sight. Like, that's what he's trying to say there. He's saying the old man couldn't see the ball. I mean... I mean, it's fairly loaded, colourful. He's obviously uh, quite annoyed with the reception he's getting mm-hmm. at Wimbledon. Uh, obviously, that prompted him to spin in the direction of the crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also kind of has this, goes into this uh, subject, which I think he 
maybe might have a point on, which is this culture of people filming them filming themselves abusing players like it happens quite a lot in the States like there's a lot of videos you'll see from NBA games of people like shouting abuse at players just hoping yeah. to get a, a reaction from somebody and the, the clip ultimately goes viral he says it's happening more and more in sport he said I don't go into Argos and just start smashing somebody at the counter when they're doing their job I've never done that in my life I just think spectators think there's no line anymore mm. they can say something and they film it and then they laugh about it I think he's kind of right mm. yeah like amid the nonsense he made a lot of good points but he was talking more socially uh, yesterday in society as a whole that um, he was saying oh this young younger generation like he's only 26 but this younger generation um, they feel that they can abuse you at will because of the presence of social media and they feel like they can say anything to you but like it, it was basically one or two people calling him a terrible player and he took massive offence to it and he said you know I'm used to people abusing me but not like that because I don't think he likes people having a go at his talent because he believes he's one of the best players in the world with natural talent which he probably is it was, it was, it, it was, it was funny at the Pats from Overs game the other night. So there was, a, I think there was. Do they still do water breaks? Like, I, I, there was a kind of a water break anyway in play. And uh, Sean Hoare, ex-Pats, now with Shamrock Rovers. And there's this Pats fan, but you could completely hear him in the middle of the stand. He's like, Sean, I have my eye on you. And he was giving him abuse, but in a very kind of a nice way. And Sean Hoare started doing this to him and started like staring him out of it. And the whole stand just started dying laughing. And it was like, it's a, it's a derby game, but it was just a lovely moment where in the League of Ireland, a player can kind of start staring out a fan who wasn't, he wasn't a young man either, started like giving him the eyes and your man just started dying laughing. I thought it was, it was endearing. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Well, your man at, Wimbledon um, what's his name sorry Curious Curious would would probably react a little bit differently but he obviously does bring it on himself he's a fairly feisty character he is yeah and the crowd love him yeah. do you know in his, po- his encore post-match interview yeah. he was so cranky right yeah, yeah, he was that. like he wasn't laughing at anything and the crowd were laughing up they were like oh he's only talking yeah because the reporter asks yeah. uh, would you be interested in going into you know uh, analysis and That's punditry right, yeah. after your career because you talk a lot to yourself yeah. he doesn't take the question well but everybody's laughing and laughing with him and like he says something that's not very funny and everybody laughs at the not very funny thing he says like I mean so certainly from that clip it felt that it's, the Wimbledon crowd the do I didn't do it kid He's Bart Simpson. Yeah, like, yeah. say the line. Say the line, Nick. <laughs> or two Simpsons uh, references. In the yeah, yeah. There. We um, got five in. Just very quickly, the COVID situation at yeah. Dublin is, is interesting. Cilic and Berrettini Easy. both gone. And Elise Cornet suggesting that uh, COVID was rife at Roland Garros and everybody just said nothing. And uh. the, they just played by those rules, whereas now it feels that people are calling each other out a little bit more or calling themselves out a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, this is, uh, is going to be a bit prevalent now. And I imagine there are people who have symptoms there who are going to keep it quiet like you know I mean that probably happens in life at the moment really, it definitely but, is definitely yeah. does yeah you know, it does. I would mm. imagine it does I mean look if you're like a a player who uh, really needs to make progress in their career and you don't feel too well like you're, you have a big decision to make this week you know a really big one because the environment's changed from this time last year where it was seen as you know radically dangerous to hide anything but now I feel like the narrative has moved on to be like oh it's an inconvenience but you know people still get really sick from this so they should say it and fair play to Berrettini because he was one of the favourites for this tournament. Can you imagine the heartbreak when he saw those two red lines pop up in the action desk? Like, I was heartbroken off in Mexico when it happened. So can you imagine him? I remember thing. calling to a house in, like, early in COVID, like about three kilometres away, and being petrified of being found out. Like, it was kind of a Stalin estate for a few months or whatever. Yeah. Different times. Different times. Uh, unless you look at the, the front page of uh, some of the newspapers this morning. Um, let's not go there. Colm, good stuff. <laughs> Thanks a million. God, uh, sports pages. There are so many idiots out there, so many spoofers. There's a lot of horse.
I think he's a total spoofer. What do you mean a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, uh, no, I mean, come on, don't, don't be, no, I'm not, yes. no. 26 minutes played uh, in Hamilton. And actually, John Duggan's joining us in studio to give us an update on that in a second. So we'll uh, fill you in in just a moment. I'll run through some of the uh, back pages before we go there. Uh, the Irish Independent leads with uh, the Armagh story. Armagh Club hit back at unfair vilification of Tiernan Kelly. Orchard panel member at centre of apparent eye gouge storm. A great ambassador for the game, says his club. Uh, and Farrell plays down Schmidt's importance to all blacks. Andy Farrell talking about the possibility of Joe Schmidt being head coach in effect for the All Blacks this Saturday he says that there's a, a chance that he won't be actually head coach come Saturday that, that everybody who's been COVID affected could be back so uh, maybe we rushed to that one a little bit too soon back of the Herald is United in for De Jong Hall Ten Hag closing in on Barca midfielder as uh, 17 million euro Malaysia deal done you go with, go with that one De Jong Hall yes yeah. yes yeah. good headline I thought you were referring to the signing itself no, did no. you drink it there a lot De Jong uh, well, I I it's it's uh, it's very convenient to hear JD as you know are you a fan I am yeah it's an iconic it's that kind of old would you call it Georgian kind of facade or yes a lot of, obviously a long hall with guns on the wall mm. um, bit of character great point everyone's standing up that type of art yeah just one other thing I just want to uh, bring your attention to is the Irish Times sports section Darrow O'Shea's column the worst thing about Sunday's melee is politicians making hay out of it and uh, he refers to the comments from uh, Catherine Martin in particular about Michal Martin getting in on the act he says and uh, this pylon that he says is, has been occurring since uh, Sunday not saying for one second that the eye gouge was right or it's, he doesn't say it's anything other than a, a right, terrible yeah. act it's but, also um, Flanagan as well and just a few comments from politicians about getting the Gardaí involved and stuff like yeah, that yeah so uh, he's uh, gone with that angle as well uh, you've heard John Duggan there John uh, what is going on in Hamilton? Yeah, uh, Marys are sprinting down, going for a try here, and they lead by 11 points to 10. And they've got and it. They've got the try. Cesar and Sullivan got the first try, and they've got just got another one there. So 16 points to 10 now. They lead Ireland. In Hamilton, it was a, it was kind of a very, very disappointing start for Jeremy Lockman. Like, that is Sean Stevenson with the try for the Mary Blacks. Uh, so he was forced off after only a minute on his debut with a HIA. So Keane Healy coming on, Kieran Frawley win with a penalty. Lockman's back in. Back in, is he? Yeah, uh, uh, which is interesting, like because it did uh, it did seem that he wasn't going to come back on. Yeah, uh, so he's back in, and Ireland took the lead through a Kieran Frawley penalty. It was levelled up at three points apiece. Then they got a try, Zarn Sullivan, and then Bundiaki, who's captaining the side today with a try, which is brilliant to see for him. And there's a. A Bundyaki flag in the crowd and everything and people wearing leprechaun hats and stuff and I, I saw a Tipperary jersey Mayo jersey and a Kilkenny jersey already uh, on the screen this morning but Mary's back in front uh, with, a, with a try from Sean Stevenson there and uh, Josh Ione now with a Tricky enough conversion. It is like, tricky enough. Frawley's looked assured off the tee so far. He's gone two he from two, but he slid off the, the try scorer there on the wing. If he makes his tackle, he puts him out over the line, and this isn't the try for the Maori. So uh, a, a mixed morning for him so far, as you say, conversion there, which is which is tricky, which will put them uh, It's wet. Clear. It's wet in Hamilton. Uh, obviously, the, the game is in Eden Park on Saturday. And this is a conversion now to come. A lovely kick, splits the posts. And it's now 18 points to 10 in favour of the Mary All Blacks. Half an hour played there. We'll keep you up to speed. Keith Wood joining us later to give us analysis on that game. But uh, a tricky enough opening 30 minutes for the Irish down there.
John, what else is happening? Well, the statement, I don't know if you've read it out yet, have you? Oh, no, I haven't. Uh, from from uh, Clan Aaron uh, about the vilification of Tiernan Kelly on social media in the aftermath of that Galway Armagh quarterfinal in football on Sunday at Croke Park uh, in the wake of his, um, you know, the contact he made with the I area of Damien Comer. So this is their statement. Tiernan has been and always will be a great ambassador for our club. Anyone who knows him will know the dedication and hard work he puts into both his club and county, along with the time he spends coaching and encouraging our young Gales. His dedication to the GA, both on the field and behind the scenes, is nothing short of amazing. One moment does not define a man. The GA will have due process regarding this issue. We would ask people to let this process take place before making judgment. Well, what do you make of this? I think two things can be true at once, that you need to throw the book at Turning Kelly and give him a lengthy ban for what he did. Like, he shouldn't have been anywhere near that. He wasn't even a player on the pitch of the day. And secondly, uh, none of us are perfect. We're all human beings. We all make mistakes. Um, we've all done things in life we're not proud of. So there's a disciplinary aspect to it. And then there's the other aspect that the man needs his life and peace after that. Mm. Johnny, you were there on Sunday. Did you come away from the game appalled and shocked by uh, everything you saw, like the the the, the families that uh, allegedly have been uh, moved to, to kind of talk about how disgusting they found all all the the experiences they had on Sunday. Did you come away feeling the same thing? Um, I went to I went. Well, my girlfriend's the game doesn't go doesn't really. You know, the last time um, she was at a Kildare game, I think, was in 1998. That's an example of her. And we we never spoke about the Mali. Everything we spoke about was how an unbelievable game of football it was, how enjoyable it was. I know it was unsavoury, but um, Gaelic football has been in a in a kind of a, a worrying place in many respects for the last ten years or so in terms of people turning off at finding the game a bit boring at times. There's a lot of slow build up, and this was you know apart from the Mali was the best that you could see of Gaelic football. It's one of the best games I've seen in a long time. The quality of the scoring, heavy hits. We'd red card for a, a tackle that was I thought fair but mistimed, and you know the Amar player like accepts his punishment. The Mali was unsavoury, but like don't let it overshadow what was the the, the football and. Um, the whole thing with Tiernan it's just I mean unfortunately you know you're an amateur but no, it's a bit like we spoke to Colm earlier about the vilification of James Horn and Aidan O'Shea last year like um, and I've always made this point as a, as a journalist like I will I'll be wary of calling out amateur players they're doing this for nothing like and, and, and calling out amateur players even if they're not on the if they're not playing at the time for instance like this I know it's unsavoury but these are not lads on 10 grand a week these are amateur players who sacrifice their life to play Gaelic football in many respects and you, I think you should bear that in mind they're normal people and I've, I have sympathy for him it was extremely unsavoury I don't know the guy from Adam but mad things can happen in, in a moment like that and everything is trialled by social media now yeah it's going to be interesting to see I, what the, the yeah. due process actually does uh, I, turn I, out for I this think, I think the disciplinary process is not fit for purpose mm. I don't think there's enough respect for the governing body actually <coughs> in this regard I, I like you know the, the two Clare players and a Galway player getting off on procedural grounds about online meetings and all these all these letters CCCC and DRA and CHC and it's just it's it's complicated it's confusing um, and there doesn't seem to be enough respect to take the medicine. The problem yeah. with this as well was sorry Sean Kelly was sent off right. Sean Kelly is vital to Galway, absolutely vital. And like we gave away a goal straight away probably because Sean Kelly wasn't. We, we did a massive hole at fullback. Um, and and he, the, the red card that was given to him was just so um, like picking a name out of the sky because if you go in the GA's rules in terms of contributing to a melee, obviously you send off like 10 players there. So Sean Kelly getting sent off, that, that could have been crucial 
and that that when you when you it, it, this is echoes of Mayo and uh, Mead where you pick out two players that it just seems so random. So I think uh, on on the day as well, Galway could have been um, badly hit, and I do hope Sean. Um, is exonerated because clearly like you can't send off Sean Kelly and pat him for the semi-final and let everyone else off like, I, just, I, I think the summer John sorry is like has shown us how important clarity over rules clarity over suspension and discipline how important that is like we had a very mild a milder situation in the hurling where you know pundits are getting criticised for calling out actions that had happened in that monster hurling final and, and getting vilified when the CCCC comes back and actually bans players despite the fact that we don't actually know what the decision had been had the eye gouge been dealt with on the pitch ha- had it been spotted had he been sent off had, it, had there had there been something in place to I guess had it been spotted then would you have the same level of vilification as a player a few days after I'm not sure you do I think that dealing with these things in the present and, and getting the correct calls is so important to not allowing these things to spiral completely out of control because I that think sounds that, like video referee it, it kind of does doesn't it it's like that, that's the only way you can actually arrest that that's like that if you're asking me for a solution to that the only possible solution is some sort of way to, to pick that up on a video and to actually make that call after extra time when it has been picked up on, on television because like people have made this, this wishy-washy argument all week being like oh people I gouge in rugby all the time and the sport itself doesn't get pulled under a microscope and questioned but they have a um, more transparent if it independent uh, deciding commissioner exactly and uh, you have a video ref there who makes a decision on it there and then and a player gets sent off the red card is shown and they've been punished immediately mm. whereas I think that that was a little bit of the spark that exploded the story over the last little while is that a fellow I gouged and got away with it mm. and um, maybe not maybe I'm totally wrong on that but I just, I just think that that's yeah. a contributing factor and I think that that leads to kind of a wider discussion around the, the disciplinary committees and, and, and how these sort of incidents are actually dealt with you, you, yeah. don't, you don't know the nature of that incident as well what was being said like what was happening and I'm not for one second saying I gouging is, is go but like it's it's just you're looking at you're looking at pictures and you're making a judgement anything could have been going on in that melee like so you weren't there and um, you know it's, it's, it's you shouldn't be making judgement based entirely on what you saw. Uh, Brad Weber's got a try for the Mario Blacks at 23-10. They lead Ireland now in Hamilton in that first test, that first tour game. Uh, like, I think the GA fans are the best fans in the world. I really do. I, I love going to GA games. I love the camaraderie. I love the good nature. I love the passion. I love the fact you can have a drink with somebody. You can sit around with the fans from different counties. And they're an example to everybody around the world. And I really just don't think that, especially in Gaelic football, you know, managers, counties, players don't take enough responsibility around these malaise. Just mm. stop doing them. Just stop it. Just stop these malaise. So, you know, uh, it's just a bad example. We're talking about this on Wednesday um, because it's become a hot potato. The Taoiseach's got involved with, with comments, whereas we should be talking about Reno Lee. We should be talking about the novelty of a penalty shootout. We should be talking about a great game. And they're actually, it's a counterproductive for the Gaelic football as a game and for the association for this to be the hot topic, and 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 I don't think that's us trying to make news out of it, or or just uh, to be controversial for the sake of it. Um, when you have uh, an eye gouge, so I, I just think I just I just think culturally, um, football just needs to t- there needs to be more responsibility taken rather than this defensiveness. That's the the immediately de, de, de facto response to this kind of thing. And Asher, look or Asher, look at handbags. Apart from the yeah, on on that, Judy, I think that's a very interesting point. Like as, almost as long as I've been watching Gaelic games, I'm 
almost particularly football, this has been a factor. So one of the Armagh subs comes on and immediately starts squaring up and all this crap with the Galway forward. I'm like, this just doesn't happen in, in soccer, for example. Like, oh. But it is kind of, it, it's, it's deemed okay. And an extension of that is the Malise and all this rubbish like. Um, and you can shoulder lads off the ball and all this stuff. Like, why are you doing this? Why don't you just play the game? So it's, it, it is part of the G, it is part of the Gaelic DNA. And, and an extension of that is the Malise. And like, do we need this rubbish really? No. Can you not just win the just, game fairly? Yeah, yeah. You know, well, sledging then is another you're extension. You not just act like the supporters act, like a heckly mm. and with good behaviour. And like, we're talking for months about, ooh, did Brian Cody and Henry Shefflin have a frosty handshake? Mm. This is a much bigger issue. Mm, I agree. somebody I agree. having a handshake or not having a handshake. Or, uh, or, or the level of coolness in the handshake. <laughs> Versus, you know, um, this kind of messing and... Um, the extension, I, I would call it, of the pulling and dragging that you see in, in Gaelic games all the time. Can you imagine a guy coming off the pitch in rugby uh, and then like going up to his opponent and just shouldering him out of the way? Like you, You'd be laughed at, but in football it's fine. I, but, but, and it always has been as long as I've been yeah, watching. Yeah, and I think it's uh, rooted in the club game. Mm. And I, I think, but in, in rugby you've had like you know like very serious incidents. Remember Ronan O'Gara getting his head punched off from there about twenty years ago. And but there's always, as Owen said, that there is a, like an independent signing commissioner. It's a professional game, and then the book is thrown. Whereas with the GA, we're not a hundred percent sure what's going to happen because the processes are so convoluted and technical and open to appeal and open to lawyers getting involved. This is a voluntary organisation. It's an yeah. amateur body. And I, I do feel there's an amateurism to uh, the processes, to the lack of respect to the GAA as an organisation to m- make its recommendations around suspensions and for counties to take them. And there's an amateurism to the way these kind of shamazals and malees that are, are constant, I call them scourge in the game, are just tolerated. What else is happening, John? Um, well, we've, you know, I'm sure you've spoken about the tennis with, with Colm there, but um, we've got the under-20s involved against South Africa in Verona this evening, a 7 o'clock start. Um, we have uh, also, you know, the Lewis Hamilton story where uh, Nelson Piquet, a former world champion, used a racial slur to describe the, the British uh, Formula 1 driver, so he won't be welcome, Nelson Piquet, in the Formula 1 anytime soon. And uh, Lewis Hamilton going on Twitter and slamming archaic mindsets. Uh, Racing's at Tipperary today, first off at 20 to 5. Obviously, um, live golf is still a big thing. With Padraig Harrington said that 30 million on the back pages was offered for some of the Ryder Cup players to join Liv. Um, some of them have and some of them haven't. You had a very kind of tetchy press conference I felt yesterday with Patrick Reed, Brooks Kepka, and Pat Perez. Um, you know, very defensive about their decision to join Liv, in, in my view. and um, it's really whether there'll be more of a drip drip but obviously we had now Keith Petty of the European Tour the DP World Tour as it's called now and the APJ Tour with a more uh, close alliance announced yesterday for the next 13 years where the top 10 uh, players on the DP World Tour will be uh, eligible for PGA Tour cards there'll be an increased uh, financial investment from the PGA Tour into the DP World Tour and they're obviously kind of they're trying to um, circle the wagons and, and put up the drawbridge with the threat of live golf. But uh, any kind of fracturing of competition in sport is not good for it's not good for sport. So we'll see how it goes. But it's just a, I, I, when I see every time I see live golf, I just don't know who the audience is for this. Mm. Fifty four holes, shotgun starts, these silly team names. Obviously, they're all just in it for the money, and it's a geopolitical thing from the Saudis. But I don't understand what the audience is. Who are the audience? Um, to be fair, Croke Park on on Sunday, we knew we knew who the audience were. There were the whatever the up to a million people watching at home, and the people like yourselves in the grand. So, sport is no, sport's nothing without an audience. Sport is nothing without fans, and it should always come back to the fans. 
Yeah. Uh, John Duggan, Sorry, folks. great stuff. Enjoy the Irish Open. Uh, we have got 39 minutes on the clock between the Mario All Blacks and Ireland. It is the Mario All Blacks 25, Ireland 10. We will keep you up to speed on that. So that's probably going to be the halftime score there with uh, the Marys with the ball deep inside their own half. Uh, we are turning our attention to football. A bit of an update on the transfer window with Daniel Harris. Daniel, good morning to you. Hello. Manchester United, they've been uh, doing a bit of business, a bit of Dutch business. They've got a new left-back en route, Tyrell Malaysia from Feyenoord. Have you seen this guy play? How good is he? Uh, I saw him play in the Conference League final, so uh, obviously enough to go and paste, paste my opinion about everything <laughs> about him all over the internet. But I don't know, he, actually, he actually played well in that game. I think that it's interesting that United have gone for a left-back because when you look at the squad, one would be nice, but that wasn't an urgent need. So I think we can probably assume that, that, that um, Ten Hag thinks he's particularly good because when you look at the squad, as I said, they've got Tellers who isn't good enough and Shaw who can be good enough, but it wouldn't be the most obvious place for need in the squad. So I think that what's happened is that at the price, you know, I just consider him too good to pass up. So that would be my guess as to why they've gone for him. So when it comes to the other options that are uh, going to be coming to, to Manchester United this year, we might uh, go through some of them in just a moment. But just to touch on Frankie de Jong, um, like I guess when you look at some of the, the departures in that uh, department, you've got Juan Matt and Emmanuel Matic, Paul Pogba, all leaving the club this summer. Frankie de Jong is not just somebody to, to bolster the numbers. He's somebody who's going to transform that midfield, or at least that is the, the hope when Manchester United complete this bit of business. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it looks like United have basically got very lucky that because De Jong is a much better, more established player than you would expect would sign for United at this point. And let's be real, he's not signed for United particularly because it's United. He's signed for United because Barcelona don't want him and he wants to play for Ten Hag. But yeah, I think what will happen is Ten Hag wants him as kind of the centrepiece of the rebuild because he's the kind of player you can around whom you can build a style of play. I do find it slightly surprising that he looks like being the only sort of deep-lying midfielder United are going to sign because Ten Hag has previously said that De Jong, because he likes to go on adventures around the pitch, he's not someone you can play as a number six on his own. And so United still don't have that player to sit in front of the back four next to where De Jong's likely to go. And to me, that would have been my priority. When I look at the squad, I can obviously see just as many holes as everyone else does. But I would have started with two midfield players, De Jong and someone to do the donkey work next to De Jong. And a right back would be where I'd go next after that. It doesn't look like that's what Tenach is going to do because he's already in the process of signing a left back. He looks like he's going to sign De Jong. So that's that one midfield player. But otherwise, the players that it looks like United are signing are they're trying to sign Martinez, having tried to sign Timber. And they're trying to sign Anthony, who will all fill gaps in the squad if, if they're good. But it wouldn't be where I would have gone trying to sort out the first team in the immediate term. I spoke to you soon about the rugby a moment ago. Ireland did have time to concede another try. It is 32 points to 10 to the Mary All Blacks. And um, yeah, not so much of a warm-up game, but as maybe a wake-up game for Ireland before the All Blacks on Saturday. That is a pretty extraordinary halftime scoreline there. Uh, Daniel, just on that midfield question. So what's your gut feeling about what Manchester United's midfield will look like next season, whether or not there is another addition to partner De Jong in there or not? Uh, I'm not sure because if, let's say let's say they were to sign Martinez. So Martinez can play left back, centre back, and defensive midfield. He's not going to play left back because they've just signed another left back. Um, so they might 
potentially play Martinez there, except for the fact that he played every game at centre-back for Ajax last season. I think he was their player of the year, so it would seem strange to then go and stick him somewhere else. So if we assume that were they to sign Martinez, he'd be playing centre-back, which seems a fair assumption to make, then you're looking at Fred or McTominay again. But I guess it would be slightly different because you would hope that the manner in which United will play will be slightly more defined than it has been before and the instructions they'll be given will be slightly more specific than they have done before. And that's even before we start talking about potentially Christian Eriksen turning up as well, which currently we don't know what he's going to do. But I don't think that you'd get away with the midfield of De Jong, Eriksen and Bruno. feels more like Eriksen would be someone you'd play instead of Bruno sometimes. You might play him off the right sometimes, particularly if you were to get him and not get Anthony. But I think that you're still looking at another season of Fred and McTominay, whereas for me, looking at the squad, that would be one. That would be basically the first thing I would be seeking to avoid. I think Fred and McTominay both have attributes, but when you ultimately, when it comes down to it, neither of them are good enough to take United where they want to be. So I would have been looking to replace those two and have them as uh, subs, rotation players, whatever you want to call it. That's 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 the thing, isn't it, Daniel? It's like that that fulcrum, that engine room of the team where. You know, I guess where all the uh, the energy comes from, and that to me, I completely agree with you. Like, are are the are, are these players readily available to fill in those slots? Because you can tell neither of them is good enough for it. Yeah, well, that's that's the other thing. I mean, if I say on Fred and McTominay, if you put if they were the worst player in a good team, they would be adequate in mm. most games, I think. And we've seen them. We've seen both of them be excellent in big games. They both play really well against Manchester City before, for example. And so they do, they, they do have attributes. But I think when I look at United's team and when I think, well, they need to score more goals, they didn't score enough goals last season, anywhere near enough goals last season, they need a right-sided attacker. And when I look at the defence and I think, well, Maguire's a bit slow, he's never going to get to the level that United want him to be. There is no acceptable right-back in the squad currently. I, my thinking would be, well, if you buy two midfield players, De Jong and another player of equivalent quality or as good as you can get and Bruno then you're starting to look at a midfield that will enable you to control games and if you control games then you're taking the pressure off the defence defence going to have a lot less to do because there aren't going to be opponents striding through the midfield like there's no one there and also you're going to create way more chances because there's just going to be so much you're going to have so much more of the ball the attackers are going to get the ball they're going to get the ball in better areas so that would be that would be my rationale but I guess the way Ten Hag might look at it is that if the players, the players of the quality he wants aren't available, then he's not going to go and sign players who aren't really good enough that might be a little bit better than what you've got because he won't be looking at it just in terms of next season. He'll be looking at it in terms of he wants to stay here for five or ten years or whatever and build something proper. So he knows that he's not going to solve all the problems in the first summer, which I also completely understand. So I do, I do see his perspective, but... I find it, yeah, I mean, I, I don't understand what he's planning to do at right back. That's, that, 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 that we were, even if we move on from the midfield, where we can, if he thinks, well, there isn't a good enough player to play next to De Jong that he can get this summer, and he thinks he can fill in other gaps, then I, I would understand that. But he, he's told Wan-Bissaka he can go, and that just leaves you with Dallow, who we know isn't good enough. Perhaps Ten Hag thinks he can improve him with coaching. Perhaps he's going to have a look at Ethan Laird. It's hot, I'm not quite sure. Perhaps when they find a buyer for Wan-Bissaka, then they might feel they can, that he's allowed to go out and get a right back. I'm not sure. But I understand what he's doing, but it wouldn't be what I do. It wouldn't be what I do. But then I think we can all say quite safely that Tenach knows more about building football teams than me. So, fair enough. Are you, are you optimistic that he's going to produce something from Donny van der Beek this season? Uh, not particularly. 
I think because I, d- I don't see where Van der Beek fits into United's best team. He can if he produces his best season. To me, it's still unlikely to be better than an average season not for Bruno. But he'll be handy to have around if with a, a manager who at least understands how to get the best out of him. When I look at Donny Van der Beek. I've just I've seen so little from him in, that tells me that he's good enough to play at United. Whether like he's a player who I find it much too easy to forget is on the pitch, and that's not something you want in a midfield player. But the kind of midfield player that he is is he's someone who you're more likely to see arriving into the box who perhaps you haven't seen get there, and I'm not sure how a team like United would be able to carry someone who doesn't contribute enough. I mean. Perhaps he'll get a go next to De Jong at the base of the midfield and United will become the best United teams, the best Fergie teams have all been power teams. And perhaps Ten Hag is building a possession team. And then then someone like Van der Beek might be more useful in the possession team because physically he's not big enough or strong enough or fast enough or athletic enough to play midfield in a team that are looking to outrun the opposition, overpower the opposition physically in a way that, say, Liverpool do. They're a power team. But Ten Hag maybe is trying to build a, a possession team, which is more like City. And I mean, personally, if you're, I, I'd much prefer to watch a power team than the possession team. The team is always trying to do something, it's making it a physical contest. But the players that, um, that Ten Hag is trying to sign, it doesn't look like that's what he's trying to do. And perhaps in a possession team, then someone like Van der Beek is more useful because he's obviously an intelligent player with decent technical ability. But if United were to find Ericsson as well, then you would begin to wonder what exactly Van der Beek would ever get picked for. Since we're talking about Manchester United midfielders, I have to ask you, did you watch the Pogmentary? <laughs> no, I did not. I've watched quite enough of Paul Pogba, thank you. Are you going to miss him? Uh, no, he's, I mean, he's not there half the time. Mm. I think, I mean, it's a shame with Pogba and I think that it's very easy, like, you can't blame everything that happened at United when Pogba was there on Pogba that United sold him a pub they told him it was going to be one way that they, that he would turn up and he'd be sort of to the player that you might build around but United were building properly to become good again and really I mean the managers were at fault as well because they signed like they were signed bad players but they didn't give either manager that Pogba played for they didn't give Solskjaer they didn't give um, they didn't give Mourinho actually enough money to make United to take United to where they needed to be because I think of all the, all the post-Fergie managers, the biggest disaster of all of them, even though they won the, even they won the FA Cup, was, uh, was Van Gaal. Like Van Gaal sold loads of good players for nothing and bought loads of crap players for loads of money and, and he also managed to ruin a deal for Tony Kroos that, that Moyes had set up. And so the damage that Van Gaal had done meant that in order to repair that damage, a significant amount of money was required. And although Mourinho did get quite a lot of money, which he wasted, it wasn't really enough money to actually do what needed to be done. And the same with Ole. So what they told Pogba was going to be the case wasn't in fact the case. But what Pogba gave to United was way, way less than what Pogba should have been able to give to United. What a player of that ability, an athlete of that quality, someone who had done it at the highest level... Um, what he what he was able to give was not enough, and also he was just quite injury prone. Like he seemed to miss like three months every season, and that's also quite a lot of time when you can't have a crucial player who constantly does that because then 
any player of serious quality, when you miss them, they're not there. When they're not there, you miss them, and you're never going to have someone as good to bring in to replace them. And so if that player is absent a lot, then it is going to make a difference. And that's obviously not something that Pogba could do anything about either, but it's one of the major reasons, I think, why he didn't do well at United. He had a period under Mourinho when United were just getting good, looked like they were getting good, and he was playing really well. He got injured at Arsenal. I think. He got sent off at Arsenal, I think, and then that was basically the end of it. He was never that good again. So, no, in short, I will not miss Paul Pogba. I'm sure Paul Pogba won't miss United either. And I imagine that he'll enjoy himself more in Serie A because in the same way Romelu Lukaku does because the standard's not as high as in the Premier League. The game's a bit slower and he can do what he did the last time he was at Juventus where he had good players around him who were better than the opposition, which enables him to just do the fancy stuff that only he can do because he has got incredible touch, incredible imagination, incredible physicality. But in the Premier League, he didn't really have the intensity to uh, turn it on every week. And when the funny, the flash, the, the clever stuff wasn't coming off, to still be the excellent player that he has, absolutely has the talent to be. Yeah, because I, th- I think that's the thing. Like he's he's he looks so good at times, but I, I'd agree with Daniel that like week in week out, he's not good enough uh, to be that ten out of ten Premier League player. But is he almost Daniel like a poster boy? Why? for why so many people have sort of fallen out of love with modern football? No. No, absolutely not. No. Uh, no, I don't think that at all. Like he's, he's brought a lot of joy to a lot of people. In some ways, Paul Pogba is, right, represents a lot of what's good about modern football because it's just he's a different way of thinking about the game, that he's just an unbelievable athlete with an unbelievable touch and unbelievable imagination. And there haven't in the history of football like there haven't been that many players like that and I think in this generation we're seeing more and more of that we're seeing players who just are great at everything in the same way that you see goalkeepers that can drill a pass 50 yards and all the defenders can play as well like the skill level of football has gone up and Paul Pogba is someone who represents that because he's he's also he's like a cage footballer who's grown up playing football in confined spaces so he has incredible feet and as I said, he's an, he, he's an amazing athlete. So in a lot of ways, he's a poster boy for what's good about the game. It's just, as I think, as a bloke, his mentality is not necessarily the mentality that you you see in a lot of elite level athletes. Like he doesn't have that remorseless, relentless intensity that say Mohamed Salah has or Sadio Mane has. He, he, he loves football. He loves playing. He loves doing skills. But he's not. He, he's not. He doesn't have that that nastiness, that cruelty that the best players have. I don't think. Johnny, you obviously think that he is one of the reasons why people are falling out with modern. Oh, I just like Daniel's like completely, uh, you know, indignant response to that. But I, I get his point. <laughs> well. I, I actually love Pogba as a player, but I think just a guy who's on so much money, who just you know has been so hit and miss for Man United, is almost like. I think he's definitely the poster boy for you know their demise in recent years. I think people just look at Paul Pogba and think, "Why should I care?" Like you know, because he clearly doesn't. Uh, I don't. I don't think it's right to say he doesn't care. I think he does care. Uh, no one, like, no one wants to go out onto the pitch and come off feeling that they've not given their best, or that they phoned it in, or that they've made mistakes, or that people are getting on their backs. I don't think. I don't think anyone wants that. It's just that when we talk about what it takes to be a footballer, I mean, we usually call it talent. We say that, yeah, Pogba's extremely talented, but 
the ability to perform relentlessly at the top level is a different kind of talent, but it's something that most of us don't have. And one of the things that separates elite-level athletes, not just footballers, elite-level athletes from everyone else, is the ability to constantly go to the well, go to the well, perform under pressure, and it's almost, it's almost like an illness, that kind of... I mean, obviously, the, the person who's sort of most famous for it is Roy Keane, but if you look, if you look through, look at the players that Liverpool have, like they have like Jordan Henderson, like those, uh, Andy Robertson, like that kind of that kind of thing. That the ability to do that is is rare. And Fergie and Jurgen Klopp, in particular, people who Mourinho, another one who collect players who do that kind of thing. But they're hard to find those players. And not having that doesn't mean that you're lazy or you don't care or you can't be bothered necessarily. It means that mentally you don't have that talent in the way that technically Scott McTominay doesn't have Pogba's talent, mm. but he has more drive. I think and, it'll be, if he, if he takes, uh, when he's playing for Juve in Europe next season against an English club, I think there will be the, those flickers of greatness. I, I, I agree with Daniel. I think Italian football are completely suit him way more. Mm. And it's because when he when he was at Italy when he was in Italy before he played in midfield with Pirlo and Marchisio, mm. and those are top players with drive. So that then and he was in the best team in the league. So that then enabled him to to do his thing because the drive was supplied by other people. So if United if you put Pogba in a great United team, then you'd see a lot more out of him because what you're looking to do in the team is like you're meshing different different talents, different abilities on the ball, and also different kinds of personality. And the problem that Pogba had at United was not just him, although he was problem. It was the other players who did ha- who didn't compensate for the drive that he doesn't have. What to, that would then allow him to compensate for the lack of technique some of them had. And to build him a platform to perform. But then, I guess what also happened to Pogba, and in some ways the worst thing that happened to Pogba, was United signed Bruno Fernandes, who totally market-corrected what could be expected of Pogba because the numbers he was putting up were just so far in excess of Pogba's numbers. And not only that, he had also put in a shift for you. And then at that point, it's, Pogba had a problem because after, after lockdown, United were able to play both of them because no one was fit. So they went on that great run when they, after lockdown and got into Europe because they played they could play in midfield and Matic, Pogba and Bruno even though one of those can't run one of those doesn't like running and the other one gives the ball away loads trying things because no one was fit no coincidence that Anthony Martial was also brilliant in that period and that's so but then subsequent to that it was just it sort of became impossible to carry Pogba and Bruno in the same team because there wasn't enough like Pogba doesn't give you enough running he's not on the ball often enough he's not he's not making sure that the game doesn't pass him by and Bruno is Bruno is there to do the job that Pogba was meant to do but just doing it much much better and then at that point Pogba became a real problem because then the question is how do you get him into the team so they try and get him onto, into the team on the left wing which means he doesn't need to do as much running but then when you want someone who can go on the outside or to threaten him behind he can't do that for you so Pogba's someone who really, if you put him in a team, you need to think very carefully about what's going on in the rest of the team. And United weren't really able to do that, but Juve can, Juve will be able to build around Pogba much more easily because of the way that Italian football is and Juve's position in Italian football. Daniel Harris, enjoy the rest of this off season. Take care. You too. Guys. See you again, guys. Thanks, Thanks for having me, everyone. Daniel Harris there on the line. Uh, it is Mario Black's 32, Ireland's 10.
42 minutes played there in Hamilton. A change for Ireland at half time saw that switch happen again. Keen Healy coming on for Jeremy Lockman. So uh, Lockman went off for a HIA after about 90 seconds of this game. Look a bit shook, but he was deemed well enough to come back on midway through the first half. But they've now reversed that change again and, and Healy is back in for that second half. The scoreline, if you're just joining us, probably tells you all you need to know about how things have gone so far for Ireland. Uh, a bit of a disaster. Um, John Fogarty was on speaking at halftime on Sky Sports. He was just saying that they need to work on discipline. Some of the stats, six handling errors, eight turnovers, eight penalties conceded. Uh, he was also saying that they need to work on their spacing at ruck time. So that's the verdict from within the Irish camp uh, from John Fogarty anyway. And uh, Ireland are bearing down on the, the Maori try line. So uh, they'll be going out to try and win that second half. We're going to have Keith Wood with us a little bit later on to give us some more in-depth analysis on that game. He's been watching that all morning. So we're live until half past. 10 this morning to later time uh, of, of half past 10 um, just to bring you a couple of comments KP Okaneda says poor kicks are killing Ireland when we keep ball in hand we look dangerous poor affinity on Twitter says Mary All Blacks are at a different level to this Irish side and then Danny Mac one has uh, weighed in on the GEA brawls conversation he says in GEA you mark a player directly at county sense of place how much it means it's very combustible and we wonder why it kicks off Hilarious. Definitely think the conditions, Johnny, are, are something that, that, that adds a bit of spark to it already. Yeah, no, the one on one aspect to it, and, you know, I mean, it, it goes as far as the nonsense of sledging and, you know, trying to intimidate your opponent, maybe in terms of words and in terms of shouldering and messing and all that. And, like, I've had a couple of people um, text me there saying, you're, you know, you're letting them off here in terms of the culture, and I'm not. I think it's a load of nonsense. Like, when, when I was a kid playing football and lads would start shouldering you and kind of punching you and all this like off the ball is like what are you doing like this is complete bullshit like can you not just play the game fairly but it's an aspect of it and it's it's teams trying to you know get an edge and it's I've, I've some sympathy for the for the GA because like how do you look at the video of that and come up with any conclusion like it's it was an abs- it was absolute madness and then some people who are, who are peacemakers get kind of embroiled in it and they probably react to something then and it's like here we go in the rugby. The rugby now is a bit of a schmozzle. Mm. Uh, lots of uh, pulling and dragging. The second time that's actually happened in this game. You know, it kind of feels... What's... Um, like, I mean, it, this obviously famously happened before uh, Alliance Tour, didn't it? And, um, and even in, in, in Ireland's World Cup in 2007, uh, a warm-up game that uh, tends to, to flare over and, and lead to ultimate disaster. I'm not sure we can rush to conclusion just yet about this tour, but certainly if you want to get a little bit carried away about what we've seen so far. <laughs> the signs here are, are not great. People on Twitter are already wondering if uh, this uh, gruelling tour schedule was the correct decision at all. And to be fair, I guess what we did say in the build-up to this was that Ireland are going to find out a lot about themselves over the course of the next few weeks. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not sure if, the, if, if, if they were expected to be so inferior here. And this is it's probably a key point in the game here where they're um, trying to come back. But they've certainly been matched up physically from the get-go. The Maoris All Blacks are like, um, they're well up for it and put it up physically and in terms of probably a few choice words as well. So that Irish momentum on the Maori try line came to nothing. The Maori All Blacks have just cleared their lines. 45 minutes played. They are leading Ireland 32 points to 10. Right, it is 14 minutes past nine. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. As you can see, we've got the OTB Sports Radio schedule on screen. 
One o'clock, we've got OTB Gold with Chris Waddle. Three o'clock is Coy Gig and the Euros build up and a bit of Ireland Georgia review in there. A retro panel from four o'clock on how we coach kids. And then six o'clock, OTB Gold is Paul McGrath. Seven o'clock then, as ever, Off the Ball is live on your radio. Joe Malloy will be in the hot seat tonight. You can follow Off the Ball across all our social channels. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and be sure to download the OTB Sports app for the latest and best in sports content and analysis. Up next, it is the return of Deal or No Deal with Phil Egan. After the Euros, after my first day's training, I was driving home. I was actually thinking, regretting it, what have I done? I walked into a circus. It's amazing, isn't it? Phil Egan, how are you getting on? Very well, how are you doing, lads? Yeah, all good, all good. Uh, it's been a fairly busy transfer market so far for a lot of players. Are you enjoying it? Any, any deals that stick out so far to you? Um, I have to say I'm probably not enjoying, like, the. there's far too much speculation because people know if they put stories out there they'll get traffic on, online. So some of it you, you know that you shouldn't believe it. But saying that, I remember when the reports of Mane to Bayern Munich uh, surfaced a few months ago, I thought, and he's not going to go to Bayern Munich, and he went to Bayern Munich. So. There's, a, there's a story there that uh, coffee for Cork City has been linked to Go United, and Graham Cummins put it forward in the Examiner that it was essentially a ploy by the agent. And I was like, in the League of Ireland First Division, you've applied with the agent in order to work, in order to get a better contract. So it's seeped that much into the game, which is like yeah, completely absolutely. But pl- like players will, or their their agents will, obviously be happy enough for them to be linked with certain clubs. I think United are obviously such a massive club that you often see players linked with them, but then there was never actually a deal in place. But mm. it looks good on the on the rumour mill if you're if being linked with a club of that stature. So Manchester United are on the verge of signing Frankie de Jong and Tyrell Malaysia. Uh, regarding the latter full-back, is that a good deal? Yeah, he's good. I, I would have covered Feyenoord a good bit in the Conference League last season. Very unlucky not to win it. Obviously, they got Mourinho in the, in the final, but they played very quick attacking football and Malaysia was key to that. You know, he he's a bundle of energy going up the left-hand side and... Yeah, definitely would be an addition to uh, a welcomed addition to the United squad. And I remember sitting in this studio a few years ago, and we talked about Luke Shaw was going through probably his best spell as a Manchester United player. But I always felt that for United to become a title contender, they need better than Luke Shaw. They need an all-energy fullback. They need two all-energy fullbacks that are comfortable in possession that can go for 90 minutes. Luke Shaw doesn't do that. But I think what we're going to see differently this season as well is the fact that there's five subs that players are being linked with moves. And You know, you look at them and you think, how are they going to fit into the team? But they don't have to fit into the first 11 as much as they would have had to because there's going to be so many changes now that you could be making a triple substitution with half an hour to go. You could I mean, we saw it actually before when the, there was five substitutes. Didn't Solskjaer make five substitutes at once towards the end of the, the season? That came back after the pandemic. So it's um, it's going to be part and parcel of the, the Premier League. Obviously, it's been on the continent and Liverpool used it a few times in the Champions League as well. I, I think back to that game at the San Siro against Inter where Klopp made a triple substitution. So everyone's going to have to have bigger squads and players that... You, you, you know you've been talking about rugby a lot on the, the show this morning but you think back to what Eddie Jones used to say about his, his bench like his finishers where 
sometimes you're finishing with a stronger team than you start. And you know that could be the case for for Premier League clubs next season. So next up, uh, Gabriel Jesus uh, to Arsenal has obviously been pretty much completed over the last couple of days. Uh, I think the general consensus is that this is a bit of a coup for Arsenal. Do you go along with that? Yeah, so Lacazette has obviously gone. I felt a couple of years ago Arsenal should have cashed in on Lacazette. He's obviously gone on a free, but Jesus is an upgrade, definitely. Um, you know, He's not going to bang in 30 goals a season. But I suppose what Arteta is trying to create is a Ford unit that can share the goals, and Jesus definitely can can play in any of those three positions. He could play in the right, he could play in the left, and obviously through the middle. And he hasn't played through the middle as much. He, you know, people kind of just felt that he would be a replacement for Aguero. He'd just step in when Aguero left Manchester City, but that wasn't the case. But yeah, no, he's definitely. Um, a player that would benefit as well from playing regular games. Uh, but Pep used him towards the end of the last season, so you know we obviously rated him, but um, it, it definitely would be an upgrade for for Arsenal. Um, Only 25, is it? Yeah. This is kind of almost the prime of his career. If um, Yeah, absolutely. Point to prove. Once he gets firing into the, the Brazil World Cup squad as well. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what kind of formation Arteta goes for. Vieira is a player they signed from Porto. They have a few players like that where they could play in that position just off the, the striker. Obviously, Odegaard is the one that springs to mind, but um, Emil Smith-Rowe is there as well. But as I said, they're, they have European football as well, so they're going to have to chop and change. And I think, as I said, a lot of squads of those big six, they're all going to have to have big, deep squads it's, I find it's going to be a strange season in that with the five, but also the break for the World Cup. It's almost like mm. two parts of the season. So just try and manage it up until the World Cup and then reload for the second part. And you probably, if you're a club manager, you wouldn't be too sad if some of your players didn't make certain World Cup squads. Yeah, you talk about Jesus wanted to make the Brazil squad for the World Cup. Rafinha will be another man hoping to do so. Yeah. Arsenal, it looked like, were leading the race to sign Rafinha a couple of days ago, but Chelsea uh, appear to have gazumped them. Uh, like it's hard to make a case that Rafinha won't be a success wherever he goes, especially given his Premier League quality and what he's done with his struggling lead side. Yeah, absolutely. And I always had him in my thoughts as a potential Mo Salah replacement. Obviously, it looks like Salah will leave next summer, I thought... But Rafinha, that money, Leeds can't turn down that money. Now, if Leeds are losing Rafinha and Calvin Phillips, it's all well and good getting money. But if they don't spend it wisely, then they're going to be in serious trouble. Rafinha is a, a quality operator. Um, you know, he's been linked with everyone. Liverpool, Barcelona, look like Arsenal. Now it looks like Chelsea, but he'd be, um, yeah, he'd be a really good signing for, for whoever gets him. Uh, a player that just excites you when he gets the ball takes on players and when he gets into the penalty area he knows how to finish so it'll be a good signing for Chelsea if they can get it done A couple of other things uh, to go through uh, there's been reports that Neymar has been told by Paris Saint-Germain that he is no longer wanted at the football club where should he go? Who's going to take him? See this is the problem now where I think you could see more big moves from players going to rival clubs in the Premier League because the Spanish clubs aren't going to be able to get the, the players that they, they used to always if Barca or Real Madrid came knocking you were gone but 
Premier League players, the, the money they're getting now, um, obviously the Premier League is so strong at the moment. So why would they would they go um, Barcelona? We don't know what the story is with them. So if that's the case, like what Premier League club is going to sign Neymar? Who can afford them? Who can afford his wages, the transfer fee? There's not many. Uh, and who like look at the top? Like would Pep Guardiola want Neymar? Absolutely not. Um, Definitely not. No. Like he's the the there'd be a personality clash there. I think. Mm. Um, and, and they don't need him. They've just got Haaland. Mm. Yeah. So I don't. I don't think they need him. Um, who else gets him? Okay. Like the only one, the only ones that have the money. Okay, Chelsea, but Newcastle. Neymar Newcastle he's the most Newcastle signing where mm. it would but again do you expect actually Newcastle to like in terms of flexing their muscles this how much are they going to spend in the office? I think it's going to be a gradual phase at Newcastle where because Eddie Howe's not an idiot as well like no, you know they, they won't go with these kind of players straight away but there will be a they'll be in a position in a few years where they can do it and great for the game actually for yeah they're growing the game they're, they're growing the game, yeah. Graham uh, McDill will be delighted with that. Yeah, and I know like we're going to talk about Nathan Collins. And he, Newcastle are one of the clubs that are linked to him. And if you're Nathan Collins, like if you go to Newcastle, you know that in a few years like, their trajectory is just going to keep going up. Uh, I, I, whatever people think about the, the Saudi ownership, I mean, we've seen the, the new jersey that they have is basically a Saudi Arabia jersey. And it's, you know, it sits uncomfortably with a lot of people, but footballers have a short space of time to achieve what they want in the game. And if they're getting huge money for it, they're not going to turn down. Like I mean, we're seeing it with the golfers. Like the footballers are going to be the same. Yeah, like Alex Murphy has left going nice sign for Newcastle as well, and it's. Uh it's it's so mad that like this Saudi takeover of Go United, which was going to happen a few years ago, fell through in a mysterious circumstance. Fell through, and then a few years later, we're getting hundreds of thousands from from Saudi Arabia. Effectively, you could be limbering <laughs> up for Champions League football this season, but uh, but you missed out on it. I just want like just to quickly touch on that, Phil, before we wrap this morning. Nathan Collins, where do you want to see him go? The four clubs that he's been linked with are Newcastle, Aston Villa. Leeds and Leicester I'd be staring clear of Leeds um, I think Villa would be a good move for him in the fact that or, or Leicester like I, I could see him getting game time mm. I could see him I know uh, Villa signed Carlos from Sevilla but you know they had never really been convincing at the back with, with Konza and Tyrone Mings and I just think back to there was a game I watched with Villa last season I think it was Liverpool it was the Villa Park game towards the end of the season where you could audibly hear Gerard say to Mings and Conzi, you could hear him shout at them, no risks. So don't get caught on the ball because sometimes they might try and take the ball forward and they lose it and then they're out of position. It was almost like he looked at them and said, back to basics. So it was no surprise to see that he went into the transfer market. Nathan Collins, if he goes to Leicester, yeah, he might be playing in a three Brendan Rodgers often played a, a three at the back because they were just conceding goals and I think their their biggest problem last season was from set pieces so he would be a welcomed addition but yeah it, it does look like the, the move was going to happen for him look if he went to any of those clubs I can see him breaking into all four of the, the, the sides I know Newcastle 
are going to get the they've got the Sven Botman deal mm. done which this is a guy that's moved to Lille and for, for little or no money from Ajax and then just because Lille won the, the league in, in France the, the asking fee went up considerably but be interested to see how he gets on because he was another player that had been linked with a few of the the other clubs in the Premier League but yeah, yeah it's Nathan Collins has to think what's the best move for him and uh, I often very interesting one there are lots of things to consider three at the back are they a footballing team that they can see goals absolutely and I think it's not looked at enough for players just look at a club and they think yeah I'll go there where it's very important to look at the club of you know who's the manager what style of play do they have? What formation are you going to get the best out Even of? Even where do you want to live? Like it, it is a job. That, do you want to live too, in London? Yeah. Do you want to live somewhere? You know. Yeah. Yeah. Phil, good stuff. Thanks, lads. That's dealer no deal. Um, I signed for them after the Euros. And after my first day's training, I was driving home. I was actually thinking, regretting it. What have I done? I like I walked into a circus. It's amazing, isn't it? You're very welcome back to a specially extended OTBAM. It's just gone full time in Hamilton and Ireland have been beaten by the Maori All Blacks. The full time score was 32 points to 17. I'm delighted to say Keith Wood has been watching it and is with us this morning. Keith, how are you getting on? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. That was hard watching for a lot of that game. Yeah, we knew it was going to be tough. I'm not sure we knew it was going to be quite this tough from the, the first game, from the warm up game. Yeah, I look. I, I think we did know it was going to be tough, but um, we looked uh, pretty jaded um, with the pace of the game. Seemed to put us under a huge amount of pressure. It, um, I'm always stunned, actually, by the handling of New Zealand teams in the rain, and um, it has been raining there pretty much all day. Rain for a lot of the game, and you wouldn't seem to know it from from the handling. The passes were perfect out in front all the time. Good level of sympathy with it. Um, the pace, the running lines, um, I think it gives a, a fairly sharp insight into some of these players who, um, who've who been brought out to be blooded on the tour, that the standard to play at international rugby is pretty high. And um, I just thought the pace pretty much at rock time uh, and the handling was had us in all sorts of trouble. So, so those are the two big uh, takeaways from the, this morning, you think, rock time and uh, just basic skills in tough conditions. Yeah, rook time and, and our attention to rook and dealing with the referee and how the rook goes because we got penalised off the park. So we never seem to get ourselves into any level of momentum. Um, um, and we seem to give a lot of momentum uh, to the Maoris because every time uh, there was a rook, we seemed to give away a penalty or it was very, very quick for them. So, you know, all our players who are at the end of a, a long season um, if you don't slow down the ball, you're never going to catch a breath, you know. And we were, I mean, our forwards were lumbering um, in the last seven or eight minutes of the first half. They'd been run absolutely ragged. And that's when the, the gap seemed to open up a little bit more. Is that, from your experience, the biggest challenge of going down on these summer tours is is the fact that you are at the end of the long season and, and you are a little bit gassed even for minute one? And I think, look, it's a, it's an incredibly long season, but I, I'm not using that as an excuse. I'm, I'm using it as, uh, um, for, for a couple of different reasons. You go down there, you play, you have to get to the pitch of the game. Um, you have to get to the pace of the game. You have to slow things down so that you're able to actually go and play. You have to have a defensive setup. And so when you look at, at the Irish, the Irish team, it's a lot of guys who haven't played international rugby, a lot of guys who this is a pretty big step up. And, and some of them, 
uh, Heineken Rugby is a, is a step up for them and is pushing them a bit too much. This is pushing it up to another layer, another level. Um, and uh, you're trying to blend a team, you know, of our mixture of first, seconds, thirds players um, into into a match against a team who is playing with with a high level of pride, a high level of attention to detail. I mean, I go back to the to the skill level at the start um, when you see. Stevenson and Sullivan and uh, catching the ball at pace, um, still having the time to look to where they're going to pass it. I mean, there were very, there was sympathy with the pass all the time. So they had players running on from depth all the time, catching it with their fingers, not their hands or not their chest. Um, on a wet day, uh, Ireland never got themselves in a position to be able to defend properly. And I think we were exposed very heavily by some of the players not having played together before. Um, um, especially when you're put under that level of pressure. So, uh, look, I thought just it's a chastening enough sort of day. I, I started out as writing notes for the first half, and I was just saying, look, this is a great opportunity for guys to see the the standard they're going to have to get to. But then it just drifts away as the game kind of goes along, and then it just becomes a, a hard, really, really hard day at the office, you know. And I think some guys came out of it pretty well, but uh, not a huge number today. It seemed Ireland were kicking the ball away more aimlessly or with more frequency than they were during the Six Nations. Just, I, look, I, I'm... Kicking the ball when we kick it is just is very annoying. I I, I think too often. And when we did have the ball in the twenty two in the first while, O'Brien kicked it away a lot. Uh, Casey, I think box kicked too much, um, and he was under huge pressure. I mean, the the front five were were getting fairly pummeled by the pace, but also in the scrum, um, and also at ruck time. So he was having to dig for the ball an awful lot. Um, there's a slight different interpretation of offside and uh, um, which is from where you're coming from an offside position and when the ball is out and uh, I don't know whether Wayne Barnes is trying to play it differently or but Ireland didn't adjust to that properly Um, and uh, Casey got caught too often with the ball in hand Um, so it it was just again one of those just really really tough things but you need to hold on to the ball you can't kick it away too often um, having said that, no, I thought Frawley played pretty well um, on his first start. Like he hasn't played no time at 10. And I, I thought at times he grew into the game. And I know he went to kick a ball out in the full at the end. I'll never criticise him for that because um, Ireland had lost the game and he was pushing for every single bit of it. And I think that's the right thing for him to do. OK, so a glimmer of hope in, in Frawley's performance then. Who, who, yeah, I, I, look, I think so. For his first time starting um, and getting a chance to play and he was given the full 80 minutes, which I appreciate. Um, I Look, I thought he did some things well, some things not so well, but that's fine. He's starting. So that's all those things are great. Um uh, I got I was very worried and I'm hoping that Keane Healy is okay because um, uh, he had to come on very early for Lachman I thought Lachman I thought he was a bit unsteady on his feet going off the field I was surprised to see him coming back onto the field and then he was taken off again at half time um, but Keane Healy looked that looked like a horrible injury and the referee reacted immediately to stop the game because um, he could hear the the, the shout of pain from Keane Healy so I'm hoping that's not too serious um, but it looked pretty bad and I fear for him a little Yeah especially at this stage of his career as well there's going to be a, a new call up 
in that position, Keith, or is it like I mean, Bealham comes on to to try and uh, I guess stop the, the the bleeding at that side of the scrum late on in that that game, but to lose Lockman and uh, to to lose Healy potentially for the first test at least, I mean that's um, that's a huge blow immediately to Andy Farrell, and that's probably the big takeaway from today. Yeah, I mean we had we had conversations about it a few weeks ago that our depth chart. Um, we've struggled a little bit at the end of the season in the front row and our depth chart was just getting a little bit thin. Now it's gotten awful lot thinner. So look, there are huge issues to worry. It isn't as if there's, um, you're leaving a huge number of players at home um, that are uh, are up to scratch at this level. So um, look, I think it'll be interesting to see exactly what they actually do because, um, uh, you know, there is three tests and another Maori game. Uh, it's it's a very tough tour. I, like, I'm really excited by the level of the tour, but I'm not excited by the level of guys that went down injured. No. What what happens next, do you think? Is, is it a, a new call-up at that point? Uh, I think it has to be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll obviously see how things develop on that front over the next little while the the Lockwood situation is just a bit of a harder one to nail down because as Keith said he uh, came off went back on and then didn't show up again for the second half so so a decision was clearly made at half time and then the other thing Keith was was James Hume that didn't look great either No it didn't um, I thought it was uh, just a bit of a bang at the start but then he couldn't seem to put his, his foot down on the ground so it kind of looked like a, a stomach or a groin injury Um and uh, yeah, that didn't look that didn't look too good. So look, we've already had a chunk of injuries on the tour before. You know, before the first match started, there's a few more from today. It depends on the seriousness of some of these. But um, look, that's that's one of the issues I think of playing in a in a very long season in the manner that we have. I think we're at a month eleven in the season, so um, we've managed to keep an awful lot of the teams pretty much injury free. I think for a lot of the year. Um, but uh, it seems to be taking its toll at the moment. Like, obviously, the tendency here is to to wonder whether or not five games was the the correct decision given the the amount of injuries, but this is an unbelievably steep learning curve for those people who will will now need to come in, and that's the whole point of a a tour of the year before a World Cup, is it not? Well, I think it is, actually, and uh, strangely, I think it's a very tough tour, Um, but I'm not saying I think it's a a wrong tour. Um, Look, we have gone in... For World Cup after World Cup, where we've been confident or not confident in the last World Cup, we'd kind of lost our way in the 12 months previous to the to the World Cup. Um, we hadn't made any of the changes. This is the opportunity to make changes uh, 12, 14 months out so that you have more options. And um, like the options can't be just to keep the oldest players there till you get to the World Cup. It has to be about unearthing new guys younger guys, uh, giving them the exposure at international level to try and get the best out of them so that at least they're some way prepared by the time you get to a World Cup. But um, So I look, I, it's an incredibly important tour. Um, the team has always had uh, high pretensions over the last while. They've, they've won some championships over the last period of time. They're very capable. Um, it's trying to bring it on to the next level and have the strength of depth. And it's how do players react when they're suddenly drafted in, like Niall Scannell, landed yesterday and played 35 minutes today, you know, and, and played pretty well, actually. So, um, the uh, you know, you have to be able to react. You have to be able to turn around very quickly in, in World Cup. So um, it's pretty important. To, this tour has been important always. It's been marked as, as one of those big elements of where, where we go. But, um, yeah, it was tough today. 
If you go through some of the, the positions then that uh, might be in question over the course of the next few weeks, like I mean, you look at the back three and Jimmy O'Brien's obviously had a great season with Leinster, you Jordan Larmer and Keith Earls on the wing. I guess Earls is probably the, the person out of, out of those three you might have been expecting to put his hand up for test inclusion over the next few weeks. Are all those those three lads now really fighting to, to get bench time over, over the next little while and certainly this Saturday? Yeah, I, it's uh, it's very hard. I think once, uh, and it's one of those things as nerve wracking things. You almost don't. You want to get picked for the first match mm. on tour, and you don't because it can have a, a, um, a very short turnaround time to go and play. And actually, playing three or four days apart is very tough, incredibly tough. In the forwards, almost too tough for the most part. Um, in the backs. Yes, you can get away with it, um, and uh, but you don't want it with guys with hamstring injuries and fatigue and all that sort of stuff that sets in with that. But um, uh, look, my view on 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 this tour would be that all the players will get a game. I think different options will be taken. I think Ireland will look to win uh, as many matches as they can, and today wasn't a good start for that. And uh, they'll definitely want to win. Um, a test and they'll go to try and win the series of course because that's the the nature of this group of players but but they would definitely want to win a test um, but it's, it isn't about using the same players just to get from mm. A to B um, over the next three or four weeks I think they're going to have to chop and change the players like is there a vulnerability that was exposed today as well to kicking in behind that that back three that's that that the Marys have exposed and maybe it's not a personnel issue maybe there's a bit of an Achilles heel that we perhaps didn't quite appreciate until this morning. It was a little bit of that, but not not too much really. I mean, I think like New Zealand teams are very smart, so they play what they see in front of them in a lot of cases and. Um, like this is very tough, I think, for a supporter to look at, but when you see the game at that pace. Players are out of position consistently. And if we also talk about what we've been, um, I think the reaction to Leinster losing to the idea that you need to have more grunt, um, more grunt when you're playing against certain types of teams. But when you play against an all-black team or an all-black Maori team, um, it isn't about the size, actually. It's about how quickly you move around the field. And by some of the pace at different times, uh, I only burned... um, uh, Bundiaki for uh, for one of the tries at the start um, for Stevenson try, um, you know it's the, the amount of pace that that's been that that was on view would put you under huge pressure. So it's you have to get used to that. So it's been a very different type of rugby that the guys have been playing all season to suddenly go and play this particular type under these conditions where you expect to have a little bit more time with the ball in hand or, or to. Um, uh, to put pressure on people with ball in hand, their handling was excellent. Ours put us under pressure, slowed us down somewhat to make certain that we'd hold on to it. Okay, so there's a commonality here a little bit in terms of pace being an issue, either in open play and then also with the pace of, of the ruck. Like, is that, was that not a, a situation at the end of the season, especially with Leinster, that they were really thriving off quick ruck ball, whereas today it was kind of the opposite for Ireland? Yeah, it's a bit of that too, but also it's a mix of players that yeah. haven't played as completely different really it's the, it's the Ireland A team that's Leinster really as opposed to, to the team yeah, that we have today and having played in an international uh, uh, um, jersey you know mm. so this make, it's, it's a big step up in level um, look I always think that these particular games you learn an awful lot about the players you're not going to say that all 
23 that are used are, God, yeah, we did really well there. Now we know exactly where they are. But certain players come out of it and say, OK, he's able to play with a bit of composure. We don't have to worry too much about him. He can make the next step up. And it's much easier to make the step up if you've got three or four um, very seasoned players in and around you. So that's different when you have a team that you pick entirely from um, from scratch. And I know the Maoris is done like that. And that's the argument against it. But the difference with that and as has always been, is the level of skill and skills training that um, New Zealand kids have. They're so comfortable with the ball. I mean, the level of comfort, um, that try, I think we talked about the pass from Ione to Stevenson. I think it was Stevenson. He was going at full tilt in the rain off his left hand, um, uh, running straight, uh, you know, passing left to right. Fantastic. And it was exactly where it was supposed to go. How come Ireland have been able to better cover up that disparity in skill level over the last couple of years, particularly in the the games that took place in in November? Well, I think for me, it puts down, because this comes across as being far too negative, and I don't want it to be negative. I don't think it's, I think there are plenty of negatives from from today, but I also think it's, this is part of the process. And um, for for me, our Irish first team, um, and we're at the top, when we're at the top of our game and we play well, we're structured enough um, defensive enough, uh, skilled enough playing with the same players to be able to do it. Our strength and depth is getting better and it's been getting better all the time, but it gets exposed when you play against a team that plays a style that you never, ever come across. So I thought we were exposed today and I think the players will learn an awful lot from it. There's also, I guess, the fact that this is... Um like I mean, this is a team that's I guess a patchwork. You know, a load of debuts, a load of people playing maybe in in positions that they weren't expected to get their first Ireland Ireland cap in, or certainly people early in their Ireland career. So I presume that defensive cohesion and when you're talking about the Irish system, isn't something that you could have been ho- overly expectant of of seeing in full flow today. No, you'd like it to have been better, and you'd like mm. to have been able to slow down the rocks an awful lot, uh, an awful lot more because that, I think, ultimately put our defensive structure under under pressure. You don't want to be thinking about your defensive structure. You just want to know, having done it by rote, you've done it enough. Um, you're having to think about it when you're, when you're sucking diesel because the ball is so fast and you're consistently out of position. So that makes it pretty tough. Um, I do think these are things that you can work on. And I will also say that if you go down to New Zealand on a tour, um, you tend to have a couple of easy matches before you get going. This was this was not an easy game. Um, uh, this was a big emotional game that was played at a uh, frenetic pace from the start, and uh, and and I think put us under pressure. I don't think we got ourselves into it, and and um, so like we've it's a tough few weeks ahead, like a really tough period of time. And it'll be the mark of which players stand up during that period of time. So it's like it is the hardest place to go on tour and it is incredibly difficult down there. And they do play with a higher level of skill than we're used to. So um, like we have to learn about that and learn it very quickly. Gavin Coombs is one of the, the bright sparks for Ireland today. Yeah, um, well, for me, the the great joy was uh, Bondiaki's try mm. uh, because Gavin Coombs passed and he doesn't he did, hasn't passed that much for Munster. And I know that sounds kind of wrong, but he's been used as a, as a one out ball carrier, very powerful guy. Um, he has been well below his standards this year. Um, I think he got a shock with the pace, um, but I actually thought he came back stronger in the second half from it. 
But that idea that everybody thinks he's going to carry the ball into contact, two people were drawn straight in to tackle him. And he had a very simple pass to uh, to Bondiaki to put him over from about 15 yards. So, look, he needs to be able to change up his game a lot more. The the, the quality of the back row for, for the international team is incredibly high. He does offer something different. He has an incredibly... Uh, um, good power game and it's how that's brought in and the most got out of it and that's what I'm actually looking forward to for this tour is to see what Farrell can do with the players um, with some of the players who have been off the mark this year can he re-energise them all get them back to a level of where they're excited by the game and it's very hard to be excited when you then play against uh, the Maori All Blacks who are on fire Mm, that's for sure so out of the players that actually got some game time today Keith who do you expect to play on Saturday? Um, I haven't even put any thought into that. Um, I think we may have uh, difficulty in around uh, hooker for for Saturday um, um, because we have we've had that injury and scandal coming out. So uh, uh, I think taking um, taking um, heaven and off early um, just means you're trying to protect resources. Um, I, I still see a fair bit of pace from Ryan Baird. I think there's something there that can be of, of use. I know he came off the bench today. I think when you look at some of the players who didn't come off the, pen, the bench, it's protecting players to, for, for either to play or to be on the bench at the weekend. Um, uh, I'd like to see whether the, the like Larmer again went down injured at one stage with a stinger, I thought it looked like. Um, um, and you wanted to see those guys fly, but they didn't get the ball in space to be able to fly. So, um, like, it makes it very hard to call who might who might get um, picked from that team. Very hard to back it up after three or four days. Yeah, for sure. And also, I guess maybe an absence of people putting their hands up as well probably doesn't shift to thinking what he might have thought for this weekend. So, who, who are you starting at ten out of interest, Keith, if you, if, for this weekend? So, Carberry does get some time off off the bench, but not enough to remove him from the conversation for for Saturday. No, I, I presume you start with with Johnny at ten and um, and see how it goes. I mean, you the the first test that you play, you want to try and get out of the blocks as hard as you possibly can, as mm. quick as possibly can. So I think it's it's Johnny's there. I still don't think like we've had this discussion time after time. Who's going to put him under pressure? Um, um, there's nobody putting him under pressure just yet. So, but we've just seen again as we've just watched in there. Guys get injured all the time. If Johnny was injured, what would happen? And um, I think Joey Carberry has played pretty well with Ireland. Um, I think his form has dropped off a bit with Munster. Um, um, A good bit, I think. And so he needs to get his confidence back in. Um, Yeah, we're not. I mean, that's the purpose of this trip is to try and unearth people who are able to play in tough matches. Every one of these games is tough. What have you made of the Joe Schmidt element to proceedings this week? Uh, it's an intriguing nugget. I think Andy Farrell is saying he may not be in charge at all for Saturday. The lads could be could be back and, and it may not be as uh, as big a story as we, we first thought. But I'm sure there's a, a few nuggets he can bring to, to the All Blacks team this weekend. Absolutely. I, look, I think he has an attention to detail that everybody knows about. I think he, um, I think some of that attention to detail may be um, a really good bonus to New Zealand. I don't think they want to play in that idea that they're going to play seven or eight phases and make certain that they score um, at the end of it. I think they play with a higher level of uh, freedom that's based on a higher level of skill. Um, they're far more risk-willing um, uh, than, than than Joe Schmidt's teams. But actually, how to dismantle teams, he is incredibly good. And 
uh, he'll be a bonus, a huge bonus to them. I, making a big story out of it because of the fact he was here before. No, I don't. I don't go for that at all. People move on. It's a professional game. What, what's your gut feeling about where the All Blacks will be then over the course of the next few weeks? Is it going to be a sort of a blood curdling thirst for revenge after what Ireland did to them at the end of last year? I think there'll be a fair bit of revenge in, involved in it because it's their pride has been affected. I think Foster is actually under a huge amount of pressure and Joe Schmidt coming into the scene, um, albeit early because of, of a COVID crisis. And if things were to go very well, would put him under even more pressure. But it's, um, yeah, it's been interesting. I, when, when you've looked at New Zealand coaching setups over the last number of World Cups, they've had two or three or four World Cup coaches, you know, people who've who've been in World Cups previously or have coached overseas, you've got a huge coaching ticket of experience that tends to blend things very well. Uh, it's not quite that same at this stage. And I, I, that's, I think, why Joe Schmidt's coming back in as an independent selector. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, I, it's... It's kind of one of those unusual things. I always find when you go down to New Zealand, what happens at the very, very start? Are New Zealand confident or not confident? Well, um, their their uh, their franchises have been playing incredibly well over the last few weeks. Does that translate and can that translate quickly to to the All Blacks being up to speed and unearthing um, the players that they invariably do um, at this stage and who's going to suddenly shine? And... So, look, I would expect them to start their ball rolling for a drive towards the World Cup to get their standard really, really high. And they like to go in with a huge win rate. So I don't think they'll be leaving anything on the field. OK, so the verdict from this morning, Keith, is that it's a bit of a, a rude awakening, but you're not pressing the panic button just yet. No, I think it's a very tough, it's going to be a very tough tour. Um, uh, I think the pace of today was uh, a harbinger of what we're going to see over the next few weeks and we have to be able to deal with that. If we deal with that, we're in a much better position. Okay. Keith, great stuff. Thanks a million for joining us. It was a pleasure. Cheers. Keith Wood, former Ireland captain there on the line. So it was... Uh, the 32 points to 17 to the Maori All Blacks this morning. It is uh, the first of a five-game series. Test number one is Saturday morning at five past eight Irish time. We'll chat to you tomorrow morning on OTB AM. Thanks a million for being with us. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.